Mortal Realms! Uh, an Age of Sigmar story phase. Grab your hammer so we can clear a path through the chaos and forge our own narratives in the Age of Sigmar. Your allies chew the world ways this episode are. Hi, my name is Paul. And did you hear about the new ocean in the Mortal Realms? It's called the Emergency. <laughs> uh, I'm Aaron, and what do you call a deepkin with no eyes? A Namardi. What do you call a fish with no eyes? A fish. <laughs> and I'm Eric, but you can just call me the Namardi that likes to party. <laughs> and in this episode, we're discussing The Court of the Blind King by David Geimer. Join us on this journey under the sea to get a glimpse of the soggy society of the Eidneth Deepkin. Just look at the world around you, right here on the ocean floor. Such wonderful things surround you. What more are you looking for? How are oh, you doing no. tonight, gentlemen? <laughs> Pretty good. It's anything I put up there, you will read. Yeah, I will absolutely. I saw that. It's good. I trust you. Yeah, you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it might be a mistake. I'm doing very well. How are you? I am doing wonderfully. It was a gorgeous day out, and I spent a lot of it outside, so it's good. I didn't leave the house. Nice, nice. I only got out a little bit. Uh, my youngest had her fifth birthday uh, just yesterday, so. Uh, had to get creative in having birthday in this situation and try to make everything as special as possible. So we ate uh, our weight in macaroni and cheese and hot dogs and birthday cakes. So oh, well, happy birthday to her. Yeah. That's a lot of macaroni and cheese. It is. It is. I weigh a lot and <laughs> twice as much now. <laughs> uh, we also had mac and cheese for dinner. Nice. We Paul. had McDonald's cheeseburgers. So in your face. That's kind why. of a Mc. Cheese. It, it, it is mm. a cheese. I mean, yeah, it used to be a McCheese. So they decided to call it a cheeseburger. That's kind of boring, isn't it? So we had mac and cheese, mac and cheese, McCheese. Yeah. <laughs> well, what decadence? What what a life we lead. Um, <laughs> you have no uh, idea. Yeah, yeah. Have you have you guys been doing any hobby stuff in these the strangest of times? All the my goodnesses. Yes. <laughs> Tell me about it. I uh, I converted every model that I had for my squig army, um, and then I primed them, and now I'm like trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, Vince Venturella said he would help me, or at least work on my ideas with me, so that's super exciting. I'd love to be able to make a, a fun army out of that. Um, I have been assembling and painting all of my terrain, so I've been focusing on my Warcry terrain lately. I've done a couple testers for my Seaguard army. Um, trying to figure out what the color scheme is for that. I repainted my Warcry for the Corvus Cabal. And I painted up a couple Stormcasts for my son's Warcry band as well. So oh, I heard those, your, well, at least some models from your house are now famous and have been all over the internet yeah. via uh, Twitch or something. Yeah, my little girl painted some pink, purple, and gold um, Stormcast with paint pens and was super excited to them. So. I think she gets to claim whatever storm host she wants now. Like that's now hers. Oh yeah, exactly. All those models are her. Like all the the models anyway. All the stormcast models are the kids' models. Those aren't mine anymore. Oh no, I mean like that's that storm host is hers. Like she's now Ooh. laying claim to whatever she wants to call it. Nice. I like it. Um, it's probably going to be something flowery. I mean, she really likes flowers. So mm-hmm. pedal to the metal chamber. <laughs> pedal to the metal chamber. Don't give her any ideas. Mm-hmm. Pedal to your face. Ouch. How about you? Um, I actually uh, have gotten quite a bit of hobby in. It's one of those things where if I'm, you know, in a meeting, um, I can, 
uh, my work desk is in next to my hobby desk. So uh, if I want to, you know, slap a little paint on something while I'm uh, while I'm on a meeting or something, I can do that a little bit. Um, I've been venturing into a bit more um, uh, glazing and kind of using uh, very thin paints, uh, which is not my mo. But I I'm trying to avoid buying stuff at the moment uh, just because it's hard to get. I don't want to spend a ton of money at the moment. Uh, and, uh, so I'm kind of, it lets me take each project a little slower when it comes to painting, um, which is fine. And then I've been working on, um, for the dogs of war cry, we have a, um, war cry board challenge for our, um, circle of paint. And, uh, I'm working on a lot of MDF terrain and trying to build it up and make it sturdy and steady and ready to play on. But it's a little slow going for me. Um, uh, otherwise, been playing a lot of uh, role playing games. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and I'm really looking forward to Soulbound coming out uh, in uh, I don't know less than a month. Uh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Uh, what I've been doing, I, actually, I've been working on Warcry terrain as well. So I did finally finish. I mean, I guess a c- couple days ago now at this point, but um, the graveyard Warcry terrain is now done. Um, and so most of like the, this like individual pieces of the starter set terrain is complete. And so now I've moved on to those like four sprues of like, of like the proper wall and platform stuff. And it, now that's going to be the death of me. I survived, I've survived thus far. (laughs) Um, I've survived every kit that anyone's ever thrown at me. Uh, and a few of them have been thrown at me, um, with my kids (laughs) here at the house. Uh, but this one might be the one that kills me. What if uh, David Hasselhoff comes uh, with his black car? Are you going to be able to handle that kit? Uh, Night Rider. Night Rider joke. Night Rider joke. Um, But I can't wait to get that done because then I will finally be able to... Wait, nope, I have another train kit. It's those darn trees. But once I'm done with that, I'll be done with Warcry Train for the foreseeable, foreseeable future. Four syllable uh, future. Four syllable for sure. Um, but that is what we have been doing in these uh, isolation times. I, I'm I'm both ecstatic and kind of bummed out that everyone's discovered my secret of working from home and doing <laughs> hobby while you're on boring meetings. Yeah. Um, I, now I just assume everybody's doing that. Like people mm-hmm. who don't even do like Warhammer stuff are like at home hobbying on something. Mm-hmm. Um, are you calling so, spending time with my children boring meetings? Because you're pretty much right. I mean, yes, I am. I That's spend, I spend word, all the time word for word but guess what guys this is the moral realms podcast and we are doing a story phase and so we're going to talk about uh, a book a black library book by the name of uh court of the blind king um paul would you like to take us into the story phase the story phase in the story phase we delve into the stories characters creatures and environments of the nine realms the story the war of life affects all in garan even the underwater kingdoms of the idenef deepkin with battle raging, Prince Lurian seizes his chance to take the Jade Throne of Briomdar. But can he overcome his foes and his fellow Deepkin to claim his prize? I sure hope so. Um, you know how some people are kind of bummed? Like a lot of the Age of Sigmar novels aren't in audio. I know it, it breaks all sorts of copyright laws, but we should just go and read all of the books that aren't in audio out loud um, yeah. so that people could listen uh, to, to us. Or, and by us, I mean Paul, because I'd listen to him to read anything. I actually did already approach GW about that and was shot down. So, Oh my gosh, GW. <laughs> well, all right, guys, we're going to talk about The Court of the Blind King uh, by David Geimer, um, friend of the show. Uh, if you're 
if you're listening to this, David, first of all, I'm so sorry. Second of all, hey, how's it going? <laughs> but let's let's start. Let's start with our spoiler-free section, as we always do uh, for those folks who haven't read the book yet, but want to know if it's worth uh, dipping their toe in, dabbling in in this fine tale. Um, so let's let's do our uh, facts, our W's, um, and let's start with a when. When does this story take place? Maybe in relation to other stories, um, and is it is it pushing the narrative forward? Do you guys have any thoughts about the when on our on our book here? Post Necroquake P N P N. Oh, we should use that Ooh. as shorthand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How's it taking us this long? Uh, you know, most good things come to mm-hmm. those who wait. It had to bake. It had to simmer for a while. Yeah, it is post Necroquake. I don't, without giving anything away, I don't know that anything really comes up to like solidify it as post Necroquake. I don't know if it has all that much like bearing on the plot. And the only reason I know it for sure, for sure, is because I think he said it in like a different interview. Um, actually, on trackwords.com on uh, their uh, rapid fire, I think he said this, so it was like current. Um, but it doesn't really jump into the story all that much, which is fine. That's cool. I don't the, mind. The other, I suppose the only other point of reference may be that um, Archeon is sort of on the move, uh, kind of, you know, uh, seeking out, um, kind of making moves, seeking out the the Ideneth, which has happened over a long time, but maybe it's renewed. Um, and it's after... Um, Maybe Grant, you know, uh, Nurgle in Grand has waned, and maybe there's a chance of it uh, waxing. Uh, so, if that kind of just helps solidify, maybe just you know, we've just read Wrath of the Ever Chosen as a as a book. Maybe it's in that kind of vein, um, like in the here and now, even sure. And actually, now that I think about it, when we did the battle tome, what wasn't a, a large component of like the the Deepkin's like revelation in the world was post Necroquake because it kind of shook things up and like uh, revealed some of their like hiding places and stuff. And because of that, maybe that's you know another reason why this a lot would of take place flushed at the same time. Yeah, there oh. we go. <laughs> Good things come to those. Wait, wait. who who weighed? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, Guys, I'm playing too. I'm picking up a delay. Down. <laughs> and then uh, another point of reference, maybe matters a little, a little less, is that I, I do believe this story does take place after another uh, of David Geimer's um, short stories, also focusing on the Deepkin. But he wrote a little ditty called um, "The Learning," and there happens to be a character that uh, goes from that story to this story. So if you're trying to follow a particular timeline, yeah, you can maybe read "The Learning" first and then pick this one up. I'm um, not necessary, but well, I mean, it's necessary for me. Oh, God, what would have happened had I read them out of order? Gosh. <laughs> Perish the thought. Um, but that is the the when, as far as I see it. Do you guys have any other when when thoughts? Uh, no. I mean, the, the story itself spans about, is it about a month? It feels no. right. I don't know for sure. And I bet you we could go back and maybe calculate it in some way but who knows how the time even works in the moral realms yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh i mean it doesn't feel much longer or really much shorter than that i, I buy a month all right are you guys sitting down nope. yes nope. i'm gonna go with the perpetual now Some of, uh, perpetual. There's, no. they've crammed so many things into the perpetual <laughs> now that i don't even know if it's even here anymore is it full to bursting it's so slow though <laughs> actually Very back cool. to your month though don't there's that part where they travel for a long time does that take yeah. longer than a month i i don't know good question what is a yeah, month okay. in the mortal realms i mean really well i will say time i i take back the month 
time gets discussed in here a bit and how like uh, deprivation of senses can mm-hmm. can change that. And that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah. Well, and the other interesting thing is, right, like not like not to disprove Eric because that's not my goal here. My goal is to just simply state. It's also impossible. Of, <laughs> I'll be the judge of that. It's mm-hmm. also because, oh, turn around on him. <laughs> because there is no rising of the sun and setting of the sun or rising of Hish and setting of Hish, right? We don't have a cycle, as it were, right? It, it, I'm not sure how time passes underneath the ocean. In tides. That's right. It does so we pass might, in tides. So we may have a moon cycle. We do get the sun in mm-hmm. uh, in Dobrier or Domir. Oh, that's right. Uh, but no, it's time timey-wimey uh, is hard in this book. I think it's time to move on to the next W. Uh, <laughs> let's let's jump into the to the where. Um, where is the story taking place? Uh, first of all, under the sea. It's better down where it's wetter. Um, also, specifically, we are in uh, Gyran, um, in an ocean region known as the Green Gulch. Nice little place. It's uh, you know worth a visit. It's very verdant, very full of life because we are in Gyran. And I guess why 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 does it matter? Like how does Gyran or the Green Gulch come into play uh, in this into this story? Why is it important? It's a vast um, ocean that is home to, I would say, roughly four or five different uh, Ideneth kingdoms, um, and it seems um, and and such and quite a bit of variety uh, because because the what life is in Garan has has such variety. Um, the gulch is large enough to kind of support different biomes even within the ocean, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, and then, uh, I don't know if get into like the, what we'll get it. We'll find out more about what each of those are. Um, but I, I think for me, that seemed to be the, the biggest piece that, that, that kind of highlighted what the green gulch is like. Anybody else? Um, I, so I'm going to use this as a point of reference, um, but when you watch avatar, it annoyed me that their ecosystem had so few different animals and every animal had a very specific purpose. Um, in this book, it's set in the, the realm of Garan, and there were so many different, it felt like there were so many different species. It was a very full ecosystem that varied as you went from place to place. And I really appreciated that. It made it feel very Garan to me. Um, and I think that was probably a major part of the, the stage setting for this uh, story that I really did enjoy. Um, there were just a couple of little details of like, this fish was specifically bred to do this specific thing, and it does it really well. Um, and the, the identity that all of the different enclaves had was super fun for me. Um, and so it, I think it also matters because it plays into the War of Life a little bit, or the, the War of Life plays into the Green Gulch. Um, so it has a, a little bit of a taste of that going on as well, which is fun. Yeah. Because of their, um, they, they sort of have a proximity to the shore, the coast, um, land. Um, so they're not completely sort of removed or independent from, you know, the, the, the rest of, you know, the civilizations that, you know, exist out there, especially because we know about deep and how they have to be reaming, uh, every day. Um, so they need to be sort of nearby, um, uh, their, their prey, like their source of souls. 
And so, uh, yeah, re- re- they remove themselves as much as they can, but they still sort of have a, f- a f- foot or, you know, a, a little connection to the, um, to the, the coast, I guess. And that's where, um, they, uh, are, ob- ob- they observe or they have to, um, dabble in, um, some of that war of life, uh, stuff. They're not completely, uh, immune to the effects of the, the, the wars going on, um, topside. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, it's cool because there's undersea forests. Um, but uh, Paul, you you had sort of we we sort of touched on now the conclaves that maybe exist um, mm-hmm. underneath, um, and the and who we're dealing with there. Um, I guess I'll say for the most part we're following um, a, a singular main character, Lurian, who is the prince of the oh gosh, Briam Briamdar Briamdar. Nailed it. Nice. Nailed thank you. Now I'm never going to say it again. Um, and uh, he, he's not a character that we've, we've seen before. And honestly, like the idea of a prince um, doesn't come up all too much. Like there's not a model for a prince. We're more used to, to kings. But what we do know is actually a little bit about the, the Bramdar, um, which is one of the those sub-factions, those conclaves of um, Deepkin that show up in the battle tome, actually. Um, and so from there, we can, we can sort of suss out maybe the, the, the civilization or the, the, the culture that, that he's coming from, this prince. Um, we know that they are the offshoot of the Iron Rock uh, Conclave, um, who also lives in Gairan, and they're kind of the main, like, I don't want to say generic, but like default uh, Deepkin. Um, but these, the folks that we're following here, the Brimed are, are like an offshoot. They live like in these claustrophobic confines of the, the Green Gulch. It's, it's, it's a pretty dense environment. Um, they're known for their powerful uh, Isharan, which is like their their magic. Or maybe some of them are priests too. I can't remember. Um, but then these folks are b- basically relentless marauders, and they they're really good hunters. Always getting those souls, which sort of ties back into their um, connection to the the land. Um, and uh, they've been known to bring the fight to chaos. Um, and although they don't really ally with the Sylvaneth, um, they kind of have common cause and don't necessarily want to see them um, get eliminated by chaos if for no other reason they're also a source of souls um so that's just a little little bit that we know about uh their culture um from the battle tome come coming into this so i if you don't mind i think there's a little bit here if you're not familiar with the deepkin right uh so lurian is a full-blooded deepkin so he was born with a soul right and then we is it, also is it full-blooded or full-souled Full soul, yeah, both, right? So it the that's part of it here is that we have this this uh, royalty comes from being born with a soul, and part of the so yeah the Ideneth are cursed. Um, they are not um, they were not a finished product when Teclas formed them a from the first product. <laughs> uh, first souls to come out of Slanesh, um, and so uh, the the curse is that. Even if you are full-souled and two full-souled uh, Ideneth uh, have an offspring, there's no guarantee that their offspring are going to be full-souled. Uh, so um, you can have, and you, vice versa, you could have two Namardi have offspring that are full-souled. Um, there's no rhyme or reason or figuring out how it works. Um, and so those who have souls become of higher uh, caste. Um, uh, you can have, uh, as this book explores, uh, this book very much explores the role of Namardi in society and how some treat them as uh, less than, and then other parts, other societies or takes on it where um, 
the because the Namardi can take on souls from other creatures, you might have um, you know a, an orc soul in a Namardi that gives them a different kind of quality or capability, ferociousness or something. Um, you have um, uh, Namardi that can can increase their skill if they have maybe the soul of a stormcast or something like that. That their skill might show greater than a full soul. Um, uh, so there's there's a lot of potential in the Namardi, uh, and and this kind of shows kind of where that potential can go in in places, which is really cool. Exactly, and I think that's a it's a major part of who the who are. If you're not familiar uh, with the Deepkin, there is this tension within their race of the full soul versus the not soul. Obviously, they live underwater. They have all these fish and everything else going on. Um, but this is this book, I think, is a pretty good exploration of that idea as well. Um, so that's definitely part of the who of who's in this uh, novel. Under pressure. And uh, back to Lurian a little bit, being a fully sold uh, dude, um, he's this prince with his, his eye set on uh, a, a kingship, a, a crown, basically. And um, that's basically the plot of the book is, is how he hopes to accomplish that. Um, but to... I don't know, give some insight as to the sort of person that would need to, or you would need to be to fill that role. If you're going to be an an Kellyan King, um, they're both sort of military and like stately leaders. And so that's kind of the, the qualifications that one would need to get in the door. Uh, And then finally, is there any other, any other what's, I guess I I just touched on it a little bit, but any what's that we missed from, from the above? Uh, Well, I think the, Kind of an interesting thing is that what is this is this is the first Deepkin novel that we've had, right? So this is the inaugural edition of uh, of a Deepkin novel, which is super interesting to me because it really is something that will reveal a whole lot about who the Deepkin are as a race. Um, so I thought that was super cool. So if you're interested in reading the first novel about the Deepkin, I would say go for it. And I might uh, add on to that why you might be interested to read the first Deep Kid novels because um, they, I would say it's good to have read uh, the Battle Tome to get more of a sense of the background. Uh, they touch on the background of the Idanath a few chapters, like quite a few chapters in, you get more reflection on where they came from. Um, but it is a, um, a great balance of exploration between the world building uh, which is which? If you enjoy world building, there's a ton of world building here. Um, but counter to some other kinds of novels, there's a ton of of dialogue and character interaction, character building, um, and so getting a sense of how different, uh, how alien the Idaneth are in the way they think about things, uh, the way they interact with their emotions with each other in the world. Um, this does a, you know, there's a lot in here in terms of understanding them, uh, as, as a people. Let me just say, this is probably a great time to like, maybe begin our, uh, sort of spoiler free review. So Eric, since you sort of have the mic, if you want to, is there anything else you want to add? Do you recommend the book? Do you think it's a worthwhile read before we pass it off? Yeah, I heard, you know, a couple of things I heard was, um, or I heard some things that weren't as, into it. And I don't, I don't remember why some of, uh, some people weren't as into it. And so I guess I didn't go in, um, with high expectations by any means. Um, but it really captured me from the first chapter, um, because, uh, I would say, um, the first, from the first chapter, it kind of f- it flipped the whole situation on, on its head for me. Um, and then from there, it was a series of, 
um, kind of, uh, I don't know how to put it, like a series of, uh, I didn't see that coming. Um, and then when I was, I thought I saw something coming, it didn't go that way. Um, uh, and so just, it was, it was, there was a lot of surprise. There was a lot of, um, time given to moments that you may not expect that were a, a real joy. So, um, I'll say for instance, um, there's an aspect of the Ideneth being able to pull themselves out of their bodies and, uh, separate their consciousness from their bodies and observe. Uh, and so there's a very, very much, and this was a, something used to help, um, tamp, temper down emotions so that Slanesh doesn't see them or doesn't when their when their soul is, when they die, that their soul is not favorable to Slanesh. And so there's just, um, some really interesting, um, uh, description of what that's like, uh, for them. And, and I really appreciated taking the time to kind of make that a point. Uh, and it, and it is very relevant, uh, through the story. So, um, so in, in, in all that regard from the world building, um, creating such a diversity in place and space and characters, uh, and then the story itself, having a lot of character building, um, twists and turns. I, it was a, it was a solid, um, read all the way through. Um, there's probably one gripe I had that I can talk about later, but, uh, um, I really enjoyed it. So I would, I mean, I would recommend it, uh, 10 out of 10. Ooh, a Paul laid on me. So, um, this book was the kind of novel I think I was looking for when the Caradron overlords got released. It was the kind of exploration of race that I was hoping for. We get a bunch of different locations within the Idana, which I really appreciated. Uh, as Eric said, we get a ton of world building. Um, we get a ton of exploration and world building of a completely alien, completely new race, right? The KO were the first completely brand new race. We'd never seen anything like an AOS and the Deepkin were number two. And I, I really appreciated this novel, if for nothing else, a full exploration of what it meant to be this brand new thing that we've never seen before. And I really like that. So I definitely recommend it. Right on. Um, actually, I hadn't really thought about the uh, when you, you compare it to the, the KO book. Um, and I remember some of the complaints that we had. And, and I think this is a, like you said, a better example of maybe a, a, a treatise on, on the army or an introduction uh, into the army. Um, and there's something to be said for sort of immersing yourself in the culture. And, and honestly, uh, man, is it spoiler to say to sort of put uh, different factions of the same, uh, you know, culture, same species uh, and put them at odds because it, it sort of reveals a lot about who they are when you sort of face them off against each other. Um, I'm going to go with uh, that was more of a teaser than a spoiler. So I'm going to, I'm going to like give a pass. But so as, as the book as a whole, I think, yeah, it is a great introduction uh, into the culture. Um, I like that it was, I don't know, sort of self-contained. Yeah. Obviously they, they reach out and touch the world at large, but it, it's very much an internal to the deep kin type story, which I think then lends itself to be very educational as to, um, who and what and where and why we're, we're dealing with, with these people. Um, I liked, honestly, the structure was very like clean and, and well-defined. Um, I'm a sucker for just like uh, a clear cut sort of, uh, plot. Now, the complaints I have 
um, and we'll talk about those later. Um, maybe there is different like motivations that I don't quite understand or um, things didn't play out when Eric says that you, he was surprised by the way that different things occurred. Like you expected one thing and a different thing happened. Um, the different things oftentimes confused me or they came out of nowhere, um, which I can very easily overlook because overall, I think I was still uh, delighted. Like I was, I was having a great time while, while uh, reading the book. And as if you, if you, turn, I guess, some part of your brain off and, and look or overlook some of these, uh, maybe a few plot holes. I don't even want to say plot holes. That's not, that's overstating it, but um, it, it didn't ruin the, the ride um, for me. So uh, because of what the book does, like in terms of uh, exploring the Deepkin as a whole, um, I think that alone is, is worth the price of admission. Like it's where it's worth cracking it open just to, to learn quite a bit, because it, like I said, it's, um, both an enjoyable ride, but then also a, an informative one as well, which it's nice to see these books do uh, double duty. Ha, I said duty. <laughs> <laughs> My last addition might, would be uh, to say that there's uh, the f- at least the first half of this, uh, in my head I was thinking, this is a comedy. <laughs> like if this was a movie, it would it would be a, a, like a dramedy kind of uh, show. Like it's there's so much of it that doesn't take itself seriously, I guess, or it shows you the the absurd side of some of this. Mm-hmm. Well, and like this is also Geimer is our our Hamilcar author, right? So like he's really he, maybe he can't help but stretch some of those those comedy comedy chops. Um, and I regret using this reference, but much of this book is spent as a uh, sort of fish out of water situation. Um, and no uh, because regrets. of that, it, don't regret know, that at all. That was perfect. I know, but it it, it lends itself it lends itself to you know our characters being in in uh, comedic uh, situations. Uh, any other thoughts before we start spoiling the Dickens out of this thing? Moby Dickens. Moby Dickens. <laughs> what? Oh goodness! Ah. All right. Cool. Let's uh, spoiler phase. By that I mean the spoiler phase. Cool. All right. Uh, we're here. We're spoiling it. Uh, spoiler. Spoiler. Spoilers. Uh, no, everybody. Everybody dies. That's not okay. That's not true. That's a bad spoiler. <laughs> Most everybody dies. <laughs> Most everybody dies, except for the per- like one of the people you expected to die. Uh, Prince Lorian. Yeah. Where, where's he at? What's he doing? I would like, call paint him, me a paint me a picture. I would call him an idol meth as opposed to an item meth. Gosh darn it. <laughs> Come on, that was perfect. Uh he is a spoiled, full blooded, full souled uh Idoneth prince. Like he is inured to everything. He he he's just like he is the the person you love to hate, right? The the hero that you loathe to root for. Um, especially at this beginning of this book. He is just so full of himself and like just sitting around drinking wine, having a great time, surrounded by a bunch of yes men, being like, Look at me, I'm the best. There's there's a there's a lot of entitlement here. Um, you know, his the uh, he's we're set in a funeral. His mother, uh Legath um has just um died um i don't remember how if it was old age or in battle or something like that it it doesn't really matter i can't remember either um but he is he is her heir um and again the and and we learned the way this works is that uh, again because 
full souls don't necessarily give birth to full souls. Um, she adopt they, a lot of the leaders adopt uh, full souls as children uh, into like heirs of their throne, and so she adopted him uh, out of uh, from his family. Um, and so he's but he's felt very entitled. He's been given a lot. He's been, you know, taught taught culture. He's been taught um, strategy. He's been taught swordsmanship, uh, and he really thinks that his what he's been taught is enough to to for him to deserve uh, kind of what's coming next and becoming king. It's taken for granted. He's just going through the motions, um, and and uh, we kind of start in this court. And you know, th- uh, funerals people are kind of coming. They're showing up to pay respects, and there's just not a lot of respect respect given. Uh, and so, uh, that kind of, uh, you can, you get a sense of how they talk about each other behind their backs, um, how they, maybe even their friends, you know, they enter their faces. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, uh, but it's, it's this weird, like if you take Midwestern charm and throw it on, like flip it on its head, uh, where there's like, everyone's pretty clear. Like if you don't like them or not, uh, but there's a sense, there's also this sense with Ideneth of, uh, you are a full soul and that is like vastly valuable to our race. Um, so like, I'm going to hurl insult at you, but you know, you still, you still have a place here. Right. Um, and there's this, this weird balance of court, like courtly behavior. And at the same time, people, it seems like the Ideneth, um, break that the societal rules a lot, uh, for like extravagant behavior, et cetera. Um, if that makes sense. So we start in a funeral and people kind of not paying the type of respect that, that Lorian, uh, is expecting. Like at some point, like another, like visiting King, like calls him by name. And he's like, Whoa, don't you think like, like if we're, we're like peers, you should treat me with more respect. And he's like, ah, we're not peers yet. Um, and this is all before like, the expectation that Lurian's going to be crowned at the end of this funeral, which is a weird time to do it, I guess. But um, I'm not a deepkin, so it's not up to me. Uh, and then, so he goes through the motions of interacting with all, all these folks, but then it comes time to uh, meet up with um, his, uh, his late adoptive mother's, I guess, paramour. I'm hesitant to use the word lover because it weirds me out. Um, but it seems as if he's going to be yet another of um, these these uh, visitors uh, offering his condolences to Lurian. But plot twist: no condolences are offered. But instead, this um, this Reaver captain, like the 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 guy who's in charge of um, all of uh, the deep this this um, conclaves, Vanglier Felglave. Yeah. yeah, the Felglave uh, says, "Surprise! I I challenge you for the the crown." You should probably just give it to me because I'm going to whoop your butt. And so, like we said, uh, Lurian thinks he's hot S word. Um, and he's like, yeah, I'll throw it down. Like, this is, this is my, this is my birthright, which, I mean, what is a birthright for an adopted kid? But, um, I, I'm owed this at this point. Um, and yeah, uh, he, his, his ego gets the better of him because looking back on it, he probably had no business challenging this, like, pretty accomplished like general of uh, you know a leader of forces um and they uh fight mano a mano i I guess right then and there was it at the funeral that seems inappropriate he was sitting on the throne and uh he had he had kind of made a comment 
um, again, thinking he is uh, entitled to be king. It's just a matter of uh, pomp and circumstance and just going through the motions. He makes a comment to this uh, uh, fell blade that who is the most renowned uh, raider of the Gulch um, that maybe he should raid a little less because it's, it's kind of, um, re- you know, it's, overtaxing the resource uh so he he kind of does make some stately comments that maybe seem like he has some sense like he's not a, a complete idiot but at the same time uh, uh this raiding captain who's most renowned he feels like uh he can take the challenge uh and uh and we find out that that is not the case he has no uh swordsmanship capability anywhere near uh what uh Felglave has um, he gets chopped through the soul, the shoulder, um, and, uh, knocked out, um, and pinned to his, pinned to his throne, no yeah, less, which yeah. insult to injury. Um, so there's a, a point here that I'd like to make, um, is that, um, when we have this whole funeral going on, it's really a pageant, right? It is very much portrayed as a ball there's all these grand entrances like the the kings and the queens are coming you know like there is a, an elaborate room that they are in that is specifically for stately functions so even though it is a funeral this is very much a place to be seen it is very much a place to to visit to um to engage with the other um Achaeans. Uh, which is what Flint's Lurian is looking to do. Um, it, it really presents itself as a royal court in, in more ways than one. And so it, when Vangler comes in and throws down this challenge, it doesn't feel out of place completely, even though it's at a funeral to me, because it is such a show, right? There is this presentation and Everybody is escorted in by their guards, and and when Van Gunner comes in and talks about it, he has this whole brood of other knights that come in and, and pull out their weapons. It is very much a stately, almost you know, if we're going to go with the old world, Bretonian level of of court dance going on. Of you have insulted my honor, and this is my right, this is my birthright. Um, so that was a really cool world building moment. Um, that I had really not expected this early into the novel, of even though this is the death of someone, um, and the queen herself is going to be sung into this this structure called the Coral Laum, where she's allowed to continue to exist, uh, preserved, as it were, um, there is still this stately dance that is going about. And so even though there is this duel, where Lurian is completely overcome because he thinks that he's so much better than he is, um, it's almost as if you are given to the idea that he is inured of the of the presence of the court as this polite gathering of people. It is not that he thinks necessarily that he deserves it, but he thinks that no one would ever breach the the presentation of the court in order to make a challenge of any kind, uh, which was a really interesting portrayal of the Ideneth. And the reason why the the book starts with this uh, this combat is because the act of this combat challenging the king is called the court of the blind king. It's not a specific place; it is the act of of challenge uh, to the standing king or a standing king. Uh, so that's where the the title of the book comes from. 
Um, and to what Paul was talking about, it's actually made me think a little bit about it, where I initially was sort of abhorred by like this, this act in the middle of a funeral. Like, how could you? This is supposed to be this, you know, sacred thing. But like, the more, the more I think about it, like the, a deep kin funeral is completely different than any funeral that I, I would be used to. Um, a, like the person who's deceased isn't necessarily like if they're fully sold, like they're getting preserved and stored in this like coral structure. So like, they're not really gone. Like they're still part of the society to, in, in some way. And for, furthermore, like the whole point of Deepkin is they're not, they're not going to get all worked up with their emotions. And so like, we already get the sense uh, through the characters that we meet and that we're sort of looking through the eyes of that. Like nobody's particularly sad or bummed out a, maybe because they're very self-absorbed, but B because like they don't have those strong emotions anyways. And so the fact that something like this could happen in the mid- middle of a funeral is it could happen anywhere because like a funeral is in a particularly uh, weighty um, event. Uh, at least, you know, you know, that emotional event, um, because in a perfect world, no events are emotional. So that, that makes sense. Yeah. The challenge that Van Gleer throws down is he says, by the custom of a sembrel, says Van Gleer, I challenge your claim to your mother's crown. So even this duel is something that is allowed within the structures of the royalty, right? Um, it, it very much seems like a play that is, that is taking place. I think the thing that this this probably highlights throughout the whole book is that there's there's two aspects. There's one, you don't really know who's loyal, um, which is, but at the same time, everyone kind of hurls critique and insult at each other. Um, but part of that uh, one part of their non-emotion uh, goal is that like that doesn't really phase anybody. Like they might be like, I don't see that or I didn't see that coming, but they're generally not getting terribly upset about those kinds of slights. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that person isn't loyal to you. Um, people kind of talk straight to each other um, at times. Like it's it's a weird, like it's it's not across the board, but throughout the book, you have people kind of calling each other out on the carpet a little bit. And sometimes it's okay, and sometimes it's not. And it, it sometimes they're loyal, sometimes they're not. And you don't finding out what the motives are, where they are, where they're coming from, uh, is part of the game, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, when th- this is, I think, a really interesting paragraph. Um, so he says, "You may sit on the throne," came Vanglier's voice with the deliberate, distant tones of an executioner, one who wielded the blade but drew no personal satisfaction from its tally but you are not a king. Pain ripped through Lurian's body. He had never felt anything like it. So intense, so limitless, right? This was the, this to me was actually a really important part of the novel where you start to understand that Lurian has had such a sheltered life that he has never suffered pain before, right? Like this is how acclimated he was to being treated with respect. And everything, and how the you know Vanclier would see him as so unworthy that he would be willing to subject him to this. And one of the main themes of this book is how the, I, the Deepkin are not supposed to attack the Deepkin, right? There are so few; it is so much work to maintain what they have. But to me, this is really the beginning of Lurian's story, where he all of a sudden experiences something he has never experienced before. And it is so far beyond anything he has experienced in his life before, which I think is a really interesting um, 
way for a character to start their journey. Well, and then it, it cuts to a second thing he's never experienced before, and that is being locked up in a jail cell uh, in like pitch black darkness um, where he can't see nothing. Uh, he and I have that in common. I've also never experienced that before. Um, but he finds himself alive, um, sort of aching from the wound that he took from the duel uh, with Inglier. Um, but he's he's locked up in these in these cells that like presumably don't ever really get used all that much anymore. Um, because if I mean if it's a different race, they're probably just stealing your soul. And um, the uh, other deepkin are, are too good for for these cells typically. Um, so he's sort of in this abandoned. Um, dungeon that doesn't ever get used. He's left left with his thoughts for a, a bit. He's sort of licking his wounds, quote unquote, um, and, and reflecting over how he got here. Sort of outraged at the situation uh, when he is visited by a mysterious character who we soon find out to be a Namardi, um, who actually, coincidentally enough, um, was a dancer right uh, from the funeral uh, that he had just attended. So he had seen her from afar. Um, and it turns like turns out she comes to visit him in in his cell. Her goal, her mission, is to free this dude. Uh, and I think it's ex- it's made clear fairly quickly that uh, to free him and then use him um, to sort of gain power for herself uh, via the via holy matrimony. Basically, she wants to marry this prince and um, raise him up to the level that. Um, she believes and he believes that he deserves um to the the kingship she's going to help him get his throne and crown back um provided that uh, he he is willing to marry her um he hitch- she hitches a ride on his starfish yeah <laughs> there you go um and so he's desperate like the only way out is is basically through here and so he he initially agrees to this plan but Agreeing is not enough for her. Oh, no. But rather, she demands that he uh, makes a vow uh, in front of their gods um, that uh, he will uh, marry her. Um, and, uh, you know, the rule is, is king and queen of the Brimdar. So uh, he, he unfortunately has to agree to that as well. I think he gets stabbed in the hand or something as yeah. we're making some sort of blood bond. Yeah, there's, um, a, there's a, a, a very intense scene where she is holding his hand and then stabs both of them through the hand and then starts making a vow to the old gods, um, as it were, of, no, 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 you will make this vow upon your own blood and I will call upon the old gods to have you witness it. Um, again, but like, again, it's, it's something that Lurian is kind of overcome by this, like this pain and intense deprivation. Like, it is bringing him out of himself over and over again. Well, and I'll, uh, the, I guess I'll, the last thing I'll add too is that um, he, we saw that being actually like hurt by a weapon was brand new. Um, and we see the journey of what he ends up kind of going through. Um, uh, but in this too, um, we get a, we get a sense like he's being like, he has no control over where he's going next. Like he thought he was in control. He wasn't in control on the throne. He comes here. He's in prison. He thinks he has control. Somebody else rests control from him. Uh, and kind of, you know, so there's, there's a lot of this, uh, kind of, this is the, that start again of he's, he's in for some new experiences and he's kind of just going where the current takes him. 
uh, and the current is everybody else, um, which is a a really interesting start. Mm -hmm. I'll be the judge of that. (laughs) And it's Uh, come full circle. Take back, take back my power. Yeah. Yeah, Complete. Yeah. Well, and, and I think this to me, I I was talking to Aaron earlier about how this is a really interesting point for me and, and Lurian's character. Um, both elves cried out with the consummation of their agony. Pain swallowed the Gross. rain like a curse. The great ocean above him shuddered beneath the full weight of the divine. The pressure on Lurian's soul was titanic, his nerves freezing, the darkness hardening. Saltwater ice grew up his arm from the knife wound in his hand, accompanied by a beetling sound as though it were being knitted for him by a host of tiny krill with needles. The gods have heard, said Nemeriel. Kadai and Sitharai, they await you now. What will you tell them? Like, it is not only this this taking out of himself, this idleness becomes someone who is so violently thrust into sensation, but it is this witness by the gods that he feels, he can feel their being, right? We've had this discussion before about faith in a place where gods exist, and this is literally him feeling the the old ones upon him upon his body um, the old gods not like not yeah. the seraphon old ones no not the, the old gods of the of the elves right mathlan is one of the gods that she's like i'm going to hide him from anyone's eyes but mine mathlan you do that for me right like it is this constant litany of gods that she goes through um and i think this this is what really sets him up for the journey that he will take um, and so they, he, he's, he's now locked to her. They're bound together and she leads him out of the dungeons. Um, she leads him out of the palace because she's a Namardi. So like she, she obviously is some sort of like in a subservient role in some way. So she knows those back channels that nobody else is familiar with. Um, and they are able to get out of the, um, the, the whatever the structure is that the, the dungeons are in and they meet up with a pair of two other um, Namardi as well. And I, I do believe Lurian still doesn't have his sight at this point. So he's really at her um, at her mercy as she is leading him out, which is ironic because she herself is blind, like because all Namardi can't see anything. So like it's the blind leading the blind, literally. What? Just thought of that. Anyways, meet up with these, uh, these other Namardi. Um, there's a misunderstanding for a hot second and he gets manhandled by one of the, the Namardi. Um, one of her like friends um, and at first he thinks it was this big like hulking uh, dude named Uriel um, and he's like oh yeah that was definitely the guy who overpowered me but it turns out no he was actually um, roughed up by this uh, little diminutive little girl um, Namari name begins with an M Marogai Marogai yeah hey good job me um, and so it uh, turns out that she's this this ruthless um, like seamstress murderer yeah, yeah. A violent uh, little girl. <laughs> um, but the the party has now come together, and her mission, her being Namariel's mission, is to get uh, Lurian out of here, right? So no one, as far as they know, has, uh, has realized that Lurian has escaped the dungeons, and they need to get out of Dodge, head to a different um, conclave um, before anyone realizes that he's gone, so that they can um, then start to plan and plot and figure out how they can, you know, get get his uh, throne back. They're going to need allies, and so their first idea is they're going to maybe try and hitch a ride um, 
with a a caravan that was leaving the funeral out to another enclave, and so they need to navigate this sort of bizarre a bunch of different, you know, tents and things that are, you know, uh, f- full of Nomardi um, selling stuff. They have to navigate this uh, to get supplies and then link up with some sort of caravan so they can um, slip out unseen. Lurian is not wearing armor, right? Which is wrong for an Achaelian. An Achaelian would obviously be wearing armor and he has no weapon. So they have to go to this bazaar to get him armor and weapons so that they can fit in with this... Um, caravan that's leaving on the next uh a uh, whirlway well and he and he's wearing no armor and weapons so he can appear to be a namardi uh, and and uh the goal is uh uh to take this caravan through this whirlway uh and then the morgai is going to make clothes for him that are, are suitable so then they can go and approach some allies uh, to to kind of get started to um, get his throne back. Yeah, and at this point, um, the Namardi, the, the Namariel, reveals that she is actually a Nethic dancer. So she is one who helps the souls go into the Coralam. So she has some knowledge of Lurian from his dead mother that's going to move forward. And like this will kind of understand why they end up being in relationship later on in the book is that she's not just some Namardi. She is some Namardi that knows him, that has talked to his mother and has some inside knowledge of what's going on. And she's also, uh, in this scene you talk about, we get a lot of the different varieties of, of Namardi from you know, the girl who served wine at the um, party to the dancers who provide entertainment to like shawl ke- shopkeepers who uh, handle uh, weaponsmithing and stuff like that. Um, to someone like Morgai, who is a seamstress or like a, a maid or a, a you know a, a butler in a house, uh, to uh, Nemeriel, who seems to be a jack of a lot more trade, um, have a lot more skills that she's um, gained over time, um, and uh, you know is a very capable uh, leader. Um, and we get we got you know planning and and enacting uh, those plans etc. Uh, so we get a wide variety in this you know kind of couple of chapters of of the life of Namardi. And here in Bryamdar, the Namardi are held very low. Um, they're almost never even looked at, um, or certainly not looked at twice. Um, and uh, and that's part of uh, you know uh, part of the issue is you know. Uh, Luthien stands out, so trying to make him not stand out, so that they can get through all of this without uh, before um, uh, Fellblade realizes he's gone, uh, and so they've got to they've got to sneak out in this caravan. But uh, one of the people who was kind of standing by Luthien's side uh, at the funeral, one of his Achillean guard, a uh, bunch, and they they come off as a bunch of riffraff that have very little respect themselves. Uh, for themselves or the for Luthien, etc., um, recognizes that Luthien has coloring. So they talk about the perfuming and coloring that the that the uh, royalty do or the full the full souls do. He recognizes it, and that's illegal for a, a Marty to be wearing colors um, uh, that a royalty would, or the colors of Bramdar, and goes to kind of arrest or kill. And uh, Luthien reveals himself. Um, uh, thinking that his this person will help him or like stop, but then he ends up calling out uh, to try and uh, get the guards after him. They have to 
grab uh uh and is it eothane eodrain eodrain and uh they end up like knocking him out uh namariel or no is a more guy like leaps over and like knocks him out uh and they steal his uh um fangmora and uh have to take off into the deep sea instead of going through with the caravan uh what else did you guys like about that scene the 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 market scene i i just enjoyed how like down to earth it was there was this whole like oh he's my bra my my husband and we're gonna get married and we needed to get the coolest things like it was a very personal kind of touch in a in a mostly distant book when you're talking about characters so it really set up namariel as this kind of actress and um lurian had this like great like parody of eh, i don't really know how to behave which I, I i enjoyed immensely yeah and i think it really highlighted especially her her actress side really like highlighted that like namari do have personalities I, going up up into this book i guess i never really i don't know that i'd read anything that really featured a namari character and so i guess i didn't know what the personality of a namari would or was or maybe i assumed that they didn't have any at all and they were kind of just sort of like automatons like they were you know fractured sold and they just sort of did what they were told but that's not at least as proposed by this book that's not the case at all and they are just there's just as much variety in terms of what they do as as the, there is who they are like they are different people with different you know likes and needs and, and again personalities um and i think that is really been highlighted here um and c- continues to to be done um throughout the throughout the story which is news to me like so, sort of surprising um and then furthermore you mentioned the point where they um no one looks at a namari twice that's the perfect cover for lurian then is if no if, if people assume that he is a namari no one's ever going to look at him with the exception of this aodrain who i think is maybe predispositioned to look for um stature or 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 you know like it's his uh, own title. proclivity yeah, exactly. He's always keeping an eye out for something like that because he's always on the hunt for sort of inc- improving his station. And so, in a way, like he he couldn't help but notice sort of that coloring on yep. Lurian, um, especially if he's sort of, I guess, again, used to you know seeing his friend and used to seeing that level of, of status. Um, like he's always on the hunt for that. So it was going to jump right out at him. They make a point that he's he's likely joined the caravan because with Luthien out of the picture, he doesn't have a place at court. So he's trying to hitch his, uh, you know, his cart to somebody else's star fish. Um, and, uh, so that's what may have brought him to this situation. Uh, but now they're heading out into the gulch, open water. And they get a sense of this being like, you don't do this, right? There is so much deadly, so many deadly things out there. Um, that to go out into that is just like beyond mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because normally they would be with a caravan, which is their their travel is accelerated by their tidecaster, so they're not necessarily traveling that whole distance in a very literal sense. Like they're they're hitting different whirlways, or or like they're just accelerated in some way by magic to just take it at its face value and literally travel that distance by itself if it's not a suicide mission, it's, it's something close to it. Like it's going to be a, a much more arduous uh, journey, but they really don't have any other choice. And they're sort of working on the assumption that nobody else would think that they would take this journey because of how dangerous it is. And thus they have a certain level of safety of at least no one's going to be following us because no one in their right mind would be doing this. Um, but surprise, our, 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 our best friends gang is doing it right now. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, the Tidecaster helps to bring the ether sea with them, right? So it allows them to breathe easier, it allows them to travel faster, and it really gets a feeling of like they're going out into the desert, right? They're underwater, but it really feels like they're literally going into a place that is so hostile that it will kill them. And it's because they have no other option because they're fleeing from everything. Um, uh, and uh, I, I believe that this is where we get the uh, the crab spider grots, which was absolutely amazing. And I want to see somebody convert that because that sounds amazing. That that was the highlight for me in this journey. But it it literally is like it is like searching blind. Where they're like, I don't even know if we're going in the right direction. I don't even know exactly what direction we're supposed to be taking. Um, and it's a bunch of like three blind Namardi and one Akalian who has never really left his conclave at all. So it literally is two Akalians, yeah, two Akalians. Sorry. Yeah. Because they knocked out Eadrain and they brought him with the Fang Mora. Well, and, and to, to kind of address this as it's been brought up, the Namardi are vi- visibly blind, uh, but they have other senses that allow them to see souls and uh, see emotion. Um, and those sorts of things. So they can navigate in dark. They can navigate in these places because they can see other things. Um, you know, so they, they do have sight. It's just a different senses. And they explore that a little bit too. And how much like Luthien has relied the, and the full souls rely on their sight that they don't tune into their other senses as much, which is actually something that uh, Luthien's mother really tried to instill in him and pound into him to, to practice these other meditative and uh, outer body um, methods to tap into other senses, which he has some skill in, but just is, doesn't do it right. It's not a, a need. So, um, but yeah, they make it through the ocean there and they can't go through the, the whirlway, which was this long shot, get out outside, uh, gets outside the ocean on the land. And can they make that happen? That wasn't the, the, the capable so they had to make their way uh to uh his uh the realm of or the the city of elgan or the kingdom of elgan which is where his aunt um lagathe no his mother's lagathe it's laramie laramie yeah um and, and uh so he he's like well she loves me so if i go there we'll, we'll be real, well received we'll we'll figure it out uh, and so they make their way there. And they do that. They roll up. Um, and so they finally do reach this this kingdom. And is it's this, this, wait a minute. Is this a Fresh Prince of Bel-Air uh, <laughs> kind of vibe? Yeah, Dar, yeah. born and raised uh, in the corals when I spent most of his days. You're going to go stay with your Aunt Laramie and Elgan. <laughs> stay with your Aunt Laramie and Elgan. He whistled for a snail, and when it came near. Okay, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm not sorry. But. I mean, he's a prince, and mm. yeah, and he's fresh. All right, yeah. so fresh. <laughs> so, uh, Elgain is described as the White City. Um, it is likened to a pearl. This is an absolutely gorgeous, beautiful city. Um, so it, it it is it just this wonder of the uh, of the Deepkin. Um, the so fish are white. The plants are white. Everything's been bred to match. Exactly. So uh, it said there, Portis and Marty and Elgain lives like a lord in Briamdar. So it is, it is the place to go. It is a place to ask for help. Um, and they are greeted by the Ancalian guard of Elgain, Nail, who is just like, hey, dude, what's up? This is not right. You're not supposed Hard to be Hard as. Here. Right? 
hard as nails. Exactly. Um, uh, and then they're also greeted by Philandale, who's a timecaster, and they're like, hey, dude, like, this is not okay. You can't just, like, wander across the ocean floor and then be like, hey, what's going on? And so they are captured and led to Liren's aunt, again, Laramie. And turns out it was all for show because Laramie is like, oh, dude, I've been waiting for you. I was hoping that you weren't dead. And right, I'm totally going to back you for this throne, right? But you need to lay a raid for yourself. But I'm not going to let you do that until you lead one red by nail. So this is uh, this is going to be kind of a trope that's going through the book of like showing up at a village or a kingdom being like, hey, you should totally back me. And everybody's like, yo, I'll totally back you. I just need this one thing. I mean, it's kind of like a, a like a D&D campaign for sure, right? Like it's like well, you go to a new city and you meet the king and he's like, all right, well, I'll give you this thing that you're after, but you have to complete this quest for me because um, I have an exclamation point over my head. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so it's, it's totally wow. Uh, yeah, so this is the the first of what ends up being a, a, a many of these these quests, right? She's 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 willing to back him. She has this connection uh, with him. She's his aunt. She's like, yeah, I mean, I I loved my sister. And the book at some point, whether it's now or later, really talks about how close Laramie and Legathy were. Um, they were two twin, um, pure blood uh, elves born, um, which is unheard of to have two at one time to have them be twins. And so they always had this strong connection. They both came up through the Ishrian ranks. They're both in. Pr- pr- Super powerful, yeah. Yeah, casters. And so that really this strong connection um to her sister and thus um she's willing to lay it all out um for her uh nephew. But again, like his reputation precedes him. Like everybody knows he was kind of a, a layabout lazy dude. And she's like, if you're gonna be king, like it's important to know that you're capable of like the role you're gonna fill. And part of that being a an Ankelian king is you're like a military leader. You need to be able to lead like raids and things. That's very important to our culture. Um, now granted I'm adding way more words to this than she does. I think she says it in a sentence, whereas I'm maybe reading into it a little bit better. Well, it's, but kind like, of the, it's kind of the, everyone sends a quest. Like they do the, like, yes, I'll back you, but just do this one thing to me for me. And you don't, you find out what it is. And then later Luthien uh, or yeah, uh, he realizes like what lesson they're trying to teach him. And a lot of help from Numerial to spell it out, right? Um, like, what is going on here? Well, you've you've got to you've got to work your way up because you've not done raids. Because uh, he, at first, he's like, "Well, okay, I'm. Gonna, how do I start a raid? How do I get it started?" And he's like, "Well, she's like, you don't start it. You have to join one." Uh, and he gets like hand-me-down armor, and he gets like um, you know just a, the, one of the swords they grabbed at the stall back at uh, Briomir. Like he's and he's he's on Venom, which is his big fang moria um but he's in like the second wave so um like he doesn't feel like he's again kind of getting what he deserves or getting what his title should be and so this is where he starts realizing like okay uh i'm not going to get these things handed to me uh uh so what am i going to do about it um and this initial raid then it leads them to one of the coastal um a coastal um uh, camp of some bone splitters, some oryx, uh, backed by some uh, maw tribe um, ogres, um, and it's kind of doubly protected because some of those maw tribe are are blessed by the everwinter. Um, so it's cold, it's snowy. Uh, there's some admiration in his 
observance of how beautiful the snow is. Um, and so I, I think, and the, yeah, so we start seeing him kind of, I think this is a turning point for him where he starts appreciating some of this, like, okay, I'm, I realized I wasn't good at a sword, maybe against some orcs, <laughs> it'll come off better. Uh, maybe I'll get some practice here, whatever. So he kind of, he leans into it a bit. Um, and, uh, uh, it's all fun and games until somebody brings the ogres out <laughs> and, uh, the Namardi and, uh, so led by nail and the Achillean that come along, uh, get smashed up. Like they do a pretty good job of taking out the bone splitters that are there, but then you get some, uh, boar boy riders coming in, uh, and they smash up some Fangmoria, uh, and then you get this tyrant, um, uh, frost lord on top of a stone horn uh come raging in with freezing powers just smashing things left and right um and uh and nails at the front of the line and um uh of course luthien doesn't make it that far in because his combat skills aren't great um but somehow he gets it in his mind that he needs to save nail uh and so he he cruises to the front um gets uh, nail kind of finds him, uh, gives him some support and the tidecaster comes in and gives some support and they, they decide that they can't handle this tyrant and they all re but they have to come back, but he can't go back empty handed. So he's like, okay, I've got another idea. So they retreat out of that and go on to the next thing. But, uh, uh, it was, it was cool seeing kind of the, the, the how the raids work. There's a first wave, uh, that crashes into him and then they kind of retreat back. The second wave comes and crashes into him. They, they retreat back um, and seeing how that all kind of works uh, and then kind of trying to press too far into land is, is a bit difficult for him. Yeah. Like you said, it's very cool to see that like very uh, the symbolism, I guess, in the way that they, they battle the, the waves um, and how that, how they are very much the reaver strike fast, strike hard and then get, get out of there, which is, um, uh, fun to see you know honestly there's honestly not that many you know you're, uh, the hallmark of a lot of these stories are like large battles um and there aren't that many in this book and so this one really stands out to really see the mm-hmm. um the deepkin in their element which is to say water <laughs> on land um <laughs> because it is it is a sight to behold when, when it works the way it, you know it's supposed to basically well and i think we I guess I'll say here too, is like, we get the sense we, we see a lot. Um, David Geimer does a great job of, of sh- talking about how they move through the, their environment, um, kind of how they're constantly like swimming and hovering in that water. And even on land with the ether sea, where they might be fighting a bone splitter, who's, you know, flat footed on the ground, swinging his club, um, you know, that, uh, Namardi might, or, or, uh, Lurian, maybe floating over top of him flipping and able to kind of battle him as if swimming. Um, so there's just a lot of, of cool imagery and kind of, uh, again, like we talked about in counterpoint to the KO books, we see how they fight. We see how they interact. We see what they like, you know, like it's, if you can fly, you don't worry about falling, right? It's, it's that kind of thing. Um, they, they just don't have the same worry. People who live their life on land do. Yeah. Was it jarring to anybody else? To, like, like when you would expect him to walk, he'd be swimming and I'd be like, Oh, what? That's, Oh, okay. No, I guess that makes sense. Um, every time I read that, I got so confused. Like what? Wait, no, where are they? Oh, oh wait, I get it now. Um, 
Yeah, I think it, it, at first is jarring for sure. Well, and I, th- I think one of the interesting things here is that um, it's basically a fish out of water, right? Like Lurian is no longer. Yeah, I already said that joke. Think of a new one. <sighs> All right, it's basically a cod out of the sea, where <laughs> <laughs> um, Lurian is now for the first time out of the water, right? He's out of this deprivation, and he starts to have this passion, right? Like he's he's trying to fight and failing miserably, and he's like. But no, I'm not going to leave here. He goes and rescues Nail from the front of this assault with the ogres. But then they're like, hey, we can't go back empty handed, right? Like, I'm trying to prove something here. We need to actually prove something. And so he's like, hey, what about this like super tough, super defensible fortress called Koriza? We should like totally go and fight this warlord who has literally been destroying the conclaves for centuries. Doesn't that seem like a good idea? I think so. Yeah, why? I guess, why does he decide to go there? Like, what What changes is... Because they didn't get enough souls. So, the, but the, the point, it, what, I think what Aaron's asking is, it is a pretty wretched place. Um, it is not, like, easy pickings, right? Or you wouldn't think of it as um, easy pickings in terms of, like, a defenseless fishing village. Uh, this is a heavily, uh, this is a village. It is, but it's the home of, um, uh, like it is the foothold of Nurgle in this part of, of the land. And they're fighting against, um, kind of, um, in, against the Sylvaneth in this forest. But not only that, but the person, um, ahead of the, or the leader of this village is Caravinia and, and she, is a devotee of Nurgle, and, they, and the book says next to uh, like Archeon uh, Torglug, which is an interesting uh, callback to uh, um, our our favorite um, Nurgle uh, Lord turned uh, Stormcast. Um, uh, that few could find anybody better than her in terms of honoring uh, Grandfather Nurgle and and even serving Archeon. So. Uh, it is a foothold uh, there, and we find out too that like they've been in this gulch looking for the Idaneth and have been unsuccessful in finding them. Uh, so they, um, when they get there, there's so part of what they find there too is that there's this fleet of boats uh, that have been created and built just for the purpose of trying to find the Idaneth, uh, and uh, but they're they haven't been causing much of a stir as of late. Um, they, their, their power has waned a bit. Um, and so, uh, they kind of go on this stealth mission. Most of their force stays back by the beach. Um, and about a dozen of them kind of creep up into the, the town. Uh, this will include, this includes nail. This includes Lorian. This means, um, the Mariel, um, Kilar is the, the, um, soul render soul render. And then you've got a, a tide caster who's old and a little bit decrepit um and then you've got the two um morgai and Uriel. um and so all of them and some other you know are coming up and they're creeping through and they're just kind of the town people are just like zombies they're just kind of meandering around they're lethargic they've you know resigned themselves to the fate uh that death is not there's not no reprieve in death because their souls belong to uh nurgle so they just kind of wander through town or whatever and they just slip through and they start killing them like stab in the back a uh, little clandestine um, and they kind of work through the all the way up into the village and they end up 
getting about 300 souls uh, through this, this method. And they're about to kind of keep going when they start hearing like the, the clatter of feet. And so they, they uh, not only kind of, they dip into the alleyway, but they, they shroud themselves in the magic of the Aether Sea. Um, and Blight Kings are kind of marching by down towards the docks because maybe something has started. There's some bell, some alarm has, uh, um, has, has sounded. And it turns out that they've, the people who were down at the, uh, still back at the beach started, um, part of the plan was they were going to start sinking the, the fleet, sinking the boats. Alapex is chewing at the holes and all that kind of stuff. So, um, they kind of leave, um, they, uh, and when they come out of the Aether Sea or when they kind of come out of hiding, they can't find Nail. And they wonder if he's run up to kind of strike at uh, this Nurgle queen uh, or if he left back down and they're not quite sure. And Lurian's a bit suspicious uh, because the Mariel is ambitious, uh, which rhymes with T and that starts stands for trouble. Um, and, uh, and so, but they're not sure. And they, they're like, okay, well, he, maybe he went back or he can take care of himself. Lurian doesn't want to leave him. There's some, there's some points of like connection where because he saved Nail from the, the ogre tyrant, Nail kind of pledges his loyalty to his family, like Lurian as family. But there's still that tension of like, okay, everyone kind of, s- I didn't have to do not know how to be like emotionally available. <laughs> so it's that, on one hand, you don't know if that's how honest that is, but at the same time, like he's feeling like a bond, a connection, and that's not something he's felt uh, before. And so he's not sure what's happened to him. He doesn't want him to die. Uh, uh, Nail has pledged that if he goes to march on Bramdar, that he'll march with them. Uh, but he's gone, and he's not sure where he's went. Uh, and they they make their way back down to the beach. And then the Mariel says. Dude, we gotta get these souls back. You can't look for nail anymore. We have over three hundred souls. All of this is for naught if we don't take these souls back. They try and retrace their steps back down to the the dock because they think maybe they'll find him there. Um, but yeah, they get cornered by. Um, they have to. <laughs> the tidecaster has to like uh, water spray through piles of of dung uh, and and gross stuff like the houses are made of dung. Um, and so they have to get through this wall, but they're trapped. Uh, you know, there's a, um, blight King coming down, they fight him and he is hard. Like this is nothing like that. I think that ogre would have been easier than this guy. Um, uh, but they end up getting free of him, taking him down, racing back down to the boats. Um, and, uh, they're kind of way is cut off. Um, they hope that their army has gotten away. They try and yeah, just like save the souls get out of here, get them back to, um, uh, to Elgan so that his aunt can know that they actually did something and got something out of it. Um, they're racing away and, uh, there's a bell ringing, a gong ringing and a bellowing. And the, the, the Nurgle queen comes out and, uh, Paul, what is, can you describe the Nurgle queen? So Caravinia is described as a gargant. Um, now there might be a discussion as to whether she's a mega gargant or a regular gargant, um, but she is armored to the waist, uh, bare above, and just this like completely disease-ridden uh, body. And uh, when Lurian talks about her, he talks about how 
It is the feeling of the gods touching the mortal realms, being in her presence. Just being around her makes him feel sick, makes him feel weak, right? And he, he sees her coming, and she grabs something out of her pouch and whips it at Lurian. And it turns out it is the body of Nail. And as it strikes the ground, it just bursts. Uh, it says bones rattling inside the remnants of the, her arm of his armor. Yeah. So, and there's, um, this is the first comedy moment or one of the first, I mean, there's the back and forth. That <laughs> well, this is funny to you? <laughs> well, so <laughs> there's the, there's the back and forth between him and Nemario, which is humorous. Like they're, they're fighting of words. Um, but as soon as she comes down and she, they see him, the quote is, uh, Lurian screams <laughs> and I just imagine a high pitched, uh, you know, like, like there's no airs here. He is, he is relieving himself in his pants. Uh, he is faced with, with this thing and he screams like it's, there's no airs here. Um, and he is, but he is the first one to like, just lose it. Uh, and he's just like talking to the Tidecaster, like, get us out of here, get us out or jump us somewhere. We don't even care where we have to get out of here. And, uh, um, they, they like part of this, this power of, uh, this, this Nurgle, uh, goddess, um, not goddess, but, but queen is that like, even the sound of her voice and the, the horn that she plays or whatever she's creating music just like melts their bones. It makes them like not able to move or it, it just turns them into like lard, like not physically, like really, but just like they're, they're completely immobilized. Um, but he's, they're just shouting and shouting. This thing is going to murder them. There's no chance here whatsoever. Uh, and so their Tidecaster kind of basically, uh, you know, teleports them through the ether sea somewhere close by. And the is like, dude, we need to leave. And Lurian's like, but but Nail's armor is so pretty. Yeah, I need yeah. to get his armor right. Yeah. So he, he, he brings the body of Nail just so he can get his armor. <laughs> Poor Nail. Yeah. I yeah. I was I was enjoying Nail. I thought he. I was at first. I wasn't sure if he was going to try and take this throne too. Like you get a sense that everybody's in it for themselves. And this was the first time that I mean, and I think Lurian was feeling that too. Like somebody actually seemed to commit to him for him right? For what he was doing, something he did. He earned something, right? He earned somebody else's loyalty. And, uh, that was new. Well, it was also one of the first times that like he made a decision for himself or like he was able to affect his own future. Right. And the, in the, in the leading the, the party or the, the reavers to this new like target. Like it was the first time that he actually had some, Oh my God, Paul, I'm so sorry to use this word, but he had his own agency mm. and uh, was able to like determine, you know, his own, his own path a little bit. The, the other thing that happens is like this so shakes Lurian that he starts to drink this call up wine, which is what he was drinking at the beginning of the story. And it describes it specifically as a drug that they drink to deaden their emotions. But instead of drinking this, this wine to deaden his emotions because he could care less and nothing matters. He is so shaken by the death of male that like, this is how he's coping, right? Like this is, he actually is devastated by this death. And even though he's like, I want this armor, like when he actually sits and thinks about it, he's like, I am just like super bummed. This is terrible. That's why I drink during these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> so he strips the uh, nail of that armor and, and sends back his hand-me-down armor with the Tidecaster 
or sorry, the soul render and some of the, uh, a couple of the thralls, uh, back to, uh, Elgan so that his aunt knows that they have succeeded, but he keeps, yeah, he keeps the armor and it, some people are a little disgusted because he has to like scrape nail out of this armor, uh, in order to retrieve it. Um, and, uh, and so now he's suited more like a prince. Um, and he, now he commands a small, you know, force inherited from with nail gone. They've seen his deeds. Uh, he's earned that. Um, and they find themselves in, uh, Dwyhor, um, which is, uh, as Aaron was alluding to a city near land. Mm-hmm. The coolest location in this book. Why? Why do you think that? Uh, it is an underwater forest. This is like, I don't know. It just seemed absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. Just these huge trunks that are, they're growing under the water and exploited by the deepkin to make this incredible, beautiful city. But at the same time, they're, uh, they're uh, very close to the shore. So it's described as a trading hub of sorts. Like, like there were even skinks that would live in this conclave for a while. But that was described as being long in the past, and now something weird's going on in Dwyhor. Yeah, they've got this. They've got this mad king. So there were some rumors during the funeral of this this king um, Mabor of Dwyhor. And he he wasn't at the funeral, but they were sort of gossiping about him. And that, um, or wait, was he at the funeral? He didn't talk to him at the funeral. I can't remember what it was. Anyways, the point is... He came and he didn't talk to him, but he was gossiped about because he had uh, a a sylvan neth uh, on his arm. Yeah. And people were like, that, I think he married her. What? That's crazy. Um, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, that, that that sort of thing. And so he, it, the the rumor about court is that the, the guy's gone, gone mad, whether it's because of his proximity to land or, or who knows why. But um, we get a lot of that sense uh, as our characters sort of visit his, his court now too, because it, it turns out that like, it's kind of a, kind of a wild place a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they party and cavort and they have different, like it's, it, it ends up being quite a, um, I don't want to say an emotional place, but there's there's a there's a lot of passions going on here, which is not uh, uh, deepkin. Uh, it's not their bag typically, yeah. um, and so because of that, they're sort of seen as outsiders and and a little a little crazy, um, uh, sort of on the outskirts of deepkin society. I got three sentences that'll help to like encapsulate here. Uh, it says everyone here is so old. He said, "Mabhor doesn't raid anymore." Said Lurian. There have been no new souls in decades, and no new souls means no new Mar- new Namardi. So he is so mad that he has literally given up raiding, um, and and his his town his city is slowly dying. So the thing that I knew I thought of Aaron right away in this is that what part of being so close to the Sylvaneth woods or a wood that the Sylvaneth inhabit is that that the character of the Sylvaneth has leached into the elves here and and they perform a wild hunt in in the ocean um and it is described as kind of a um uh you know a dervish or you know kind of a um aesthetic dancing uh they are just uh kind of in the moment in their emotions and they're dancing and flailing and they are joined together so there's a lot of closeness and proximity and uh like skin to skin contact uh it's not um 
I wouldn't say it's lurid in any way. They don't describe it in, in being like um, profane, uh, but it's, it's just um, emotional and it's dancing. And that's something that we've consistently seen is uncomfortable for Lurian um, and, and, and such. Um, uh, and so it's, it's, it's a different, it's out of his element. It's a different type of way that elves are behaving here in the Gulch. Um, and it's directly related to their proximity with the Sylvaneth. Hey, hey guys, uh, do you want Slanesh? Cause that's how you get Slanesh. <laughs> I mean, emotion much? Yeah, geez, the way tone it down. But he, uh, eventually, Lurian is, is brought to King, uh, Mabor, who is my boy, and, uh, <laughs> he gets another, he gets another quest, basically. He says, hey, look, um, hi, I had this sweet, just a primo spear, but it, um, was, I lost it um, to uh, the Sylvaneth up above. Um, I would like you. I will. I will throw my weight behind you if you can get me my uh, spear back. Hmm. Seems simple enough. That's a D and D quest that I'm sure I've done before. <laughs> um, and so, uh, uh, Lorraine agrees. Um, I. What we know about the Briamdar, I th- which I think sort of encapsulate, encapsulates all these kingdoms, or they're sort of related, is that they do have a on-again, off-again sort of antagonistic relationship with the Sylvaneth, um, and that they are a source uh, for for souls, and so they they will sort of uh, you know attack or they're at at, at odds, and so uh, Mabor I guess lost the spirit during a, is it was a, a raid that he lost it um, yeah. with the, the Sylvaneth, yeah. yeah so. So, um, very unfortunate, bums him out, but in return, or like sort of what he's doing, um, to hold, uh, hostage is that that's that Sylvaneth that he had on his arm. He's holding that like from, from its soul pod, yeah, like from birth, I guess. Pod, yeah. Um, he was keeping it from, um, the Sylvaneth as sort of, I, I guess it's leverage. He does, he does offer deep wood for, he, he needs, yeah, he needs Lurian to go and sort of broker the trade. Look, I'll give this, this, um, uh, she has a name whose name deep grove lady deep grove yep um kidnapped she's like look i'll i'll trade it um if you can go get my spear back so this is when i say it's that on again off again like sure i will come and steal your souls but at the same time we can come and talk to you too like uh we'll let bygones be bygones and so uh Lurian agrees hey let's head on up let's get this dude his, his spear back and uh, we'll have the uh, the the forces of Dwihor um to support my claim to the to the throne now the uh, the um, sending Lurian, his aunt sending Lurian to um, on a raid, um, knowing his skill, he surmises uh, with Nail, like while they're in um, the the Nurgle city, that she may have sent him on this, like to die. Like if he dies, then he's out, then it solved my problem, right? Uh, that'd be okay. So, um, and uh, you know, and Nail kind of says, yeah, I, I was kind of rooting for you. Like I was kind of in that path too, but not rooting for you. Um, this kind of feels like um, it's another like impossible task. Like it's not like just a, Hey, go do this hard thing. It's this thing that like may not be possible. So he like, it's yeah. I just want to emphasize that these tasks aren't like just go over here and do a thing. It's like do the impossible. You know, it's another, maybe, and this isn't explicitly spelled out, but it's another example of, hey, look, what I need you to do is um, diplomacy, basically. I need you to roll up and, like, convince this this other 
to do business or, you know, to like do a sort of thing, which is a skill that he's going to need uh, to be an and Kelly and King like that diplomacy is a, you know, a vital component to it. Um, and so it's yet again, another example of, look, I need you to exhibit these skills that a King would have to prove that you're worthy of being sort of followed. Um, again, that, that, that wasn't in this particular one. I don't think it was spelled out, but it's another example of that. Mm-hmm. So they step into the woods. I think they think that they're going to like, find their way there. Um, but there are dryads and a branch wraith kind of waiting for them. Uh, and they're kind of like, we know what you're coming for. Come with me. Uh, and so they go through the woods and it's kind of a, um, uh, what is, what is the term we learned from the realm gate wars for kind of the, the way they walk through the forest. I don't think this is a, the realm roots. Yeah, I don't think they're going through the realm roots, but it's confusing. There's they figure out like partway through that like there's no way like by themselves that they're getting through this if they had to like escape. Like he's trying trying to think how are we going to get this done? Are they going to trade it or not trade it? Yeah, the um, forest is actively trying to hide their path from them. Right? Like Sword Friend is like we're going to go this way, we're going to go that way and they're like I this doesn't make any sense at all. And at one point they ask like, how close are we? And they're like, oh yeah, we're super close. But like that meant that means nothing to the, the Sylvaneth. And so they, they weren't even, they weren't close at all or something like that. Yeah. And then Lurian notices that the forest is quiet. He's like, uh, we're in the realm of life. And they, this is not uh, my realm, but like something seems wrong. And they're attacked by some Nurgle beastmen. There was a firefight. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So they fight the, the beastmen. Um, it goes back and forth for a while, but eventually the the beastmen seem to like start to gain the upper hand. They're just there's just too many, and they're overwhelming the Sylvaneth. But ah, uh, boom! Um, who comes wading into the fray? Um, but a tree lord just swinging this huge old spear, um, just hacking uh, beastmen down left and right, and he sort of routes the the chaos forces. Um, and he's in the tree lords like, all right, well, yeah, I'm, I, I've saved you. I'm going to lead you to this moot here. And lo and behold, he's actually wielding the spear that Lurian has been sent to um, to trade for. The spear also has a name, but I didn't write it down. Uh, it's, oh, it's, it's Excelle. Uh, what I was going to say real quick was that in that, um, Sword Fern uh, is under a lot of duress from some beastmen. Uh, Lurian and Eodrain rush up to help her um, and kind of protect her and take the pressure off, which is allows them to a little bit more times for than the tree Lord. So she's very thankful and surprised by that act. And I think he's surprised by that act too. Yeah. The, the spear is called S Lakai, the soul taker. Uh, so it definitely so, so like a super chill spear. then, yeah, it, it seems to be absolutely an item of weapon being used by the Sylvaneth. Right, like it's obviously something that is intended to help the the uh, Ideneth to survive, and so just the naming of the spear itself actually kind of tells the story of Mabor, right? Like he has lost his soul taker, so therefore he would not do raids, he would not do this thing because he has lost the thing that helps him to make his his conclave survive. Right on. So they lead him into the grove. Yeah. All right, Alice, Alice guy. Man, I never would have picked. That word is quite the word. Asklakai. 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 Oof. Um, 
of that he was certain anyway so yeah uh <laughs> they they wander wander for a while and they have to head to this this moot this conclave to decide whether or not they're willing to make this trade uh deep grove for um the soul takers what i'm going to call from here on out um blanking on what they they like chat for a little bit but then they break up like what did they decide so they kind of come into this clearing and they have like these different tree lords are all around he um, the tree lord that has the spear throws it into a stump and they kind of start the greeting and they hand him a beverage um, and the beverage just knocks him out. Um, and I don't think anybody was expecting that. Like it was kind of one of those, like it's good, you know, quorum to um, take the drink and accept it. And or not quorum uh, it's good manners, you know, kind of decorum. Don't, don't decorum. Don't offend them. You didn't know what was going to offend them. They're very, it's funny that he was talking about how alien they are. Um, and so he, and the Mariel and others are like, drink it, drink it. Come on. You know? So he, again, more comedy stuff in my mind. So he drinks it and then just falls right off of venom. Um, his, his Moria. He wakes up a little later and he's just like, I am, I'm, it's, it's an hour later. He's like, I got no capability. Um, you know, have Eodrain lead the, the negotiation, um, take him, have him take, go to the shore so we can have negotiation there, um, et cetera, et cetera. And she, he argues with her. She argues back. He pulls the, I'm your King card kind of thing. Uh, and she obeys, which is new. Um, and everybody kind of, they agree the, the, Sylvanath agree, and they take everything over to the shore, basically. Question for you. Mm-hmm. So like, he, he drinks the drink, collapses, and then he wakes up you know, an hour later. Did you think he really collapsed, or do you think it was all a part of his plan? So after uh, everybody's gone, he gets up, and he is a little, like, affected, but he's totally fine. Like, he's able to get up, and he's with uh, Uriel, and Uriel's like, were you actually hurt and he kind of waves that off so he it was definitely i don't i don't know if the if the falling over was part of his plan or not um because i think he actually falls asleep and wakes back up but i think he seizes the opportunity to try and make i mean i of it. i fall asleep too all the time like that's no big deal like that's Aaron, that wake doesn't up. Mean anything. Aaron, wake up. <laughs> one of the telling things though is uh before they're given in the drink the the Sylvaneth sing their song right and it's this mourning song of loss for the dryads that have died in this raid by the nurgle beastmen and both eodrain and lurian start crying and they're like what what is this like our eyes are bleeding like what what is going on right We're making salt water come out of our eyes what, yeah what i forgot the salt this? water yeah and i think like they're emotionally drained like that the song of the Sylvaneth is so powerful to make them cry that this is something they've never experienced before, the emotional draining of mourning. And so when he drinks the wine, it's like, it's just too much for him, right? I think it is this, this completely new sensation that he never experienced before. And then when he wakes up, they actually have a jug of water from one of the vents of the ether sea. And he drinks it, and all of a sudden he he starts to have this like this ability to pull himself out again, right? This this ability to center himself, and then he's like, "All right, we got this plan. We're gonna steal the spear. It's gonna be great, and everything. Everybody's gonna be happy, right?" Um, and so he just 
goes around like literally like going all Assassin's Creed and being like, <laughs> I'm going after the spear, I'm gonna kill all these Sylvanath, it's gonna be great, and I'm gonna get this sweet weapon and I'm gonna do everything with it. It's gonna be great. That's a direct quote from the book. He really yeah, he really his character really changes. <laughs> So uh, yeah, he he and Uriel uh, go commando. They have, he's like, all right, well, everyone is distracted by the 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 moot, the council. Um, I sent him to the shore. I'm going to sneak my way in, um, grab that spear, and take it take it for myself. Um, so he and Uriel, uh, like they're up in a treetop, so they have to like descend to this tree. They they come across the Sylvaneth, and oh, they got to take him out. And oh, lo and behold, there's more. Oh, I got to take those guys out too. Um, and so they end up at, racking up quite the body count as they make their way. Um, to the spear, uh, so much so that he's able to get his hands on it eventually. But like Oriole goes down um, and is and is uh, dropped by you know he's just ripped to shreds by these these Sylvaneth, um, and uh, Lurian is is basically fleeing for his life with the spear, using using it to sort of escape. And he comes across uh, Swordfern, who is that Sylvaneth that he had mis- initially met that Dryad or no um branch with the. Yeah, Branch Wraith um, that he had met initially, she's there and she's, you know, distraught over like the damage that he's wrought. But she realizes that like, look, uh, we're going to need you, Deep Ken, um, to help us fight back Nurgle in the future. And like, you've done some pretty nasty stuff so far. But despite that, if you promise to use that spear to defeat like the Nurgle forces... Um, which basically she'd been fighting like the other Sylvan enough to do so. Like she'd been arguing with the, the tree Lord to like mount the assault. She's like, if you do this for me, I'm going to let you go. I'll, I'll lead you to safety with that spear. If you can promise that you're going to fight the Nurgle forces off because they're the bigger threat. Like, um, and right now that spear isn't doing us any good if it's not being used on the offensive, um, to fight, fight Nurgle, um, off. So yeah, obviously he agrees because the dude agrees to everything. Um, and she leads him, leads him to safety, leads him to freedom. He is quick to promise. Um, but well, so far has, I mean, trying to think of as of yet, this may be the first promise he's broken that he, like he gave the, you know, the tree, the Sylvaneth, his word, Hey, if you you know help us in this trade and we'll go fight the nurgle um you know the spoilers um they're kind of eh, you know like uh, more so that like he's there for an honest reason where he's been kind of trying to figure out how to make this happen the whole time mm-hmm. well and there's definitely a sword in the stone moment where he finds eskelai and he's like i'm gonna pull it and he can't get it out and like there's dryads coming after him is like i'm gonna pull it and he can't get it out and then sword friends like I- i'll totally uh, I'll, I'll get you out of here if you make this promise. It's like, oh, totally. And then he pulls the Eslakai out of the out of the stump and then makes his way out of the the deep out of the uh, Sylvaneth forest. And then they arrive into Gwethen. Yeah, so they kind of make a jump cut. We we she just helps them get there, uh, and they get to like get out of Dodge before the rest of the Sylvaneth even know what's happened. Um, yeah, they go to a new place, Gwethen. Yeah, and Gwethen is built in the body of a sea beast. Is that right? I think that's right. Yeah, it just looks like huge carcass that this Deepkin Conclave is built within. It's, beautiful. It, it's a super cool idea. When they arrive, uh, it's described as the colossal spinal ramparts of the Tidegate, right? And and everything is built within this carcass. So it's, it's very much darker, uh, more more obviously removed from emotion, right? And 
it, it feels very much more primal than any of the conclaves that we have been to so far. So it's All the opposite of, the, of Manpour, yeah. When they open the gates, um, the the Namardi, some of them are dressed in partial armor, uh, which is unusual. And the Akelian uh, fight alongside the Namardi instead of ahead of them or behind them. They fight in their ranks. Um, and so they hold the Namardi at a higher status uh, in, in this place than other places. And it's very warrior centric. Um, they don't have as many beasts um, or like large animals. It's just not part of this space. It's a, it's a more um, remote, which is part of why it was settled. Um, but that just means that they are more into their fighting, like hand, you know, their foot fighting or, or what do you call it? Weapon fighting than they are mounted or um, soul beasts or uh, even magic. And they've, they've got like more Namardi too. It's just like that. There's a volume of Namardi as well. Like they've got a whole bunch of them and like, they're really, um, I don't know if they're efficient with their souls, but like there's the rumors that even their Namardi are like soul cannibals and they'll like take the souls of other like Namardi that like, I don't know, maybe it's a, a, a weaker thing or like if they're, you know, they're about to die, they'll salvage their souls. Um, so it is, it ends up being very Namardi centric, um, which is you know, very unique. Well, and the other thing is that the Achaeans don't ride on Fangmora, right? Like the city is described as such a vicious place that they don't actually have predators come within forever. So they don't have the, the, these predators within their, within their ranks. So even their Achaeans fight on foot, right? It, it is a departure even from the miniatures that we see in the Eidoneth, which is a really cool imagining of a new conclave. The party, however they escaped, um, are then you know led by the guards of of uh, this place, Gwethan, to um, to its king, Galrahir. Galrahir, yeah. Who um, Lurian has? They kind of had a, a very cold um, introduction back at the funeral at the beginning of the book. They they are not friends. Um, he's the one who was sort of disrespecting him, or you know, one of the few who are, who is disrespecting him. Um, but we'll fast forward through the pleasantries and. It, the gist is that the the king will also throw his weight behind Lurian, despite sort of initially throwing it um, behind the the Felglave um, at the beginning of the book. He's willing to change his mind uh, for the small the the, the small small price. Uh, it's no big deal, just a just just a pittance. If you would just I don't know marry my Namardi daughter, uh, and then if you do so, it'll it'll sort of unite our families. And, uh, you know, then, yeah, then I'll, I'll throw my, my army's strength behind yours. Um, this has a lot of ramifications. This is, this is uh, a big deal. This, this ask for a number of reasons. Um, Paul, give me a reason. Uh, well, he's already promised his hand to the Namardi because. Namario. Yeah. Namario, because literally she stabbed his hand and swore before all the gods that, Hey, you better marry me. Which was already going to be probably an issue at court because that hadn't been done. Uh, although the deep grove is probably a precedent, um, and so being asked to do this for him was interesting, um, uh, or was peculiar because you know did he have any full sold daughters or anything like that? So it's uh, interesting that he wanted that. Um, he makes he also makes a. Um, a comparison like he's kind of like why would you back me 
and because then he starts being a little ambitious, like because he's like, well, if you take back your throne, and then uh, when you'll be heir to my throne, you're heir to your aunt's throne with Naogon, so you have the potential to unite the kingdoms under a high king. Um, and and he's kind of like, uh, what well, if if Felblade wants that, and you backed him for that, why would you change? And it was kind of like a. Failblade is ambitious to that, so I'm, I'm not really interested in backing him. But since you're not as interested in that, I th- or maybe less capable, well, not maybe not interested, not able, because well, he says he wants that for his daughter. Like he wants her to be a high queen. Um, so it's not like he doesn't want him to succeed at it. But it's like because he's not ambitious, he maybe trusts him more to do it better. I guess I don't know. That's how I read it. Um, but uh, yeah. I read it more as like an insult, like you know, like I don't trust me, um, the Felglave because like he he's like a capable warrior, like he could get it done. Like eh, I don't know, you're 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 weaker. Like I, I doubt that anything will come of it if you if you are thrust into that like sort of position. I don't, know, or maybe I just assume everything this guy says is mean. Well, I think I think even when they're complimenting each other, they do it with insults. Yeah, mm-hmm. like it's all backhanded. All uh, backhanded compliments. So it's. I like that interpretation too. Um, so, uh, but Namariel cries out, you will not abandon me. <laughs> uh, we don't know like all this kind of stuff. And uh, he says, I have outgrown you. Uh, and he kind of embraces this new handout. Like it's like, he's kind of stumbling into more power than he expected. Uh, I don't, I think he's back to feeling like entitled again, right? Instead of on the path of, of what he's earned. Like this is a bit above what he's earned, right? Um, and uh, this was actually, well, so yeah, that happens. He agrees. And that happens. He, he says the king it says something to the effect. He was like, and this is such a, like a small deal. Like it's way less than what you promised Laramie or Mabor. Like this yeah. is, this is. No big deal uh, whatsoever. Peasy. Yeah. So what happens next? So so Lurian agrees to the the ob- objections of Nemeriel, and uh, they. I think the scene cuts, or the next next chapter rolls around where he's kicking it. Is he in his room at this point? Damn it! I shouldn't have said anything if I didn't actually know what happens it's, next. It's kind of the getting his tuxedo on and yeah, uh, that's getting what ready it is. to step yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. So it is the day of the wedding, right? So. Um, so yeah, he's get, he's getting ready. Um, he, uh, does have to, it, whether it's an insult or it's tradition, he doesn't know, but he has to like swim into his own, um, wedding ceremony. Um, everyone's there. Uh, even people that he didn't expect were, we're going to, we're going to, um, be in attendance. Um, another, the queen, um, of Turok is there. And that was another character. Like he had a, a very bristly, uh, interaction with, um, previously. Uh, but, he ends up, yeah, I mean, the, the wedding sort of goes off without a hitch. Well, that is to say, with a hitch. Here's what I was thinking. This is one of the places I thought it was going that it didn't go. I thought Nemeriel was going to be his daughter, and this was a test. Ooh. Like, did, is he, like, the king is like, will you marry my daughter? And it's a test of whether he honors the bond he had to her as Nemeriel, or does does he give it up for the like being promised everything until they, they do mention Nemeriel's in the audience. Like I thought she, I could, like he couldn't see her at first. He thought, where'd she go? I totally thought she was up there underneath the veil. Uh, but they do say that she was in there, but then it went back because, it, um, well, 
They go, he goes up front, they go through the ceremony and he's like hardly able to like take in everything that's happening. Like his, his, he's like in sensory overload. He's not listening. He can't hear. He doesn't remember anything that's being said. I'm sure. I mean, I don't remember everything that was said at my wedding. So maybe that's, you know, <laughs> maybe, the, maybe I was in the ether sea during my wedding. I don't know. <laughs> um, but he goes through the motions and uh, they lift up the veil. And, and I, th- the first sentence it says was uh, Namariel, Namariel is beautiful. And I was like, it is Namariel. But no, it's, it's a comparison. Like these girls are beautiful, but this person, this woman is divine. Yeah. Um, and her name is. Uh, Gwindir. Yeah. Like a, one of your oh, no, remakes. No, 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 no. It's nothing like that. <laughs> it's exactly like that. Sure. Um, I, I forgot to mention before, I just wanted to bring up um, yeah. the previous chapter. They, before he agreed, or like when he agrees, he's like, yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll marry your daughter. They're like, good. Uh, the guests are already on their way. Like we, we knew you were going to agree. <laughs> like it, it's already, it's, it's already in motion. It's like you're getting married tomorrow control. or something. Yeah. His exactly. life is so not his own. <laughs> he's lost some, some agency there yep. for sure. I'm surprised. So they go back to their room. Yeah. Who they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyways, um, so they do go, <laughs> go back to go back to the room, um, and things are about to progress. But um, Aodrain is um, guarding the the door, basically, because that's like a, a deepkin tradition. Like he's he's supposed to like watch over them. Um, but there's like a big explosion, uh, wh- wh- you know, while they're you know chatting, I guess. Um, and uh, assassins come, they, they explode in the door, and they they were sent to kill him, Aodrain. Adrian, who's been you know a pretty involved character up until this point, is is flat out dead. Like he's he's his body gets yeah, hurled like, into dude, the into the barrel chamber. I like I was super sad. I was, like, I was starting to like him. Yeah. I mean, huge huge jerk, but like uh, endearing at the very least. Uh, Urian feels the same thing. Like he is surprised at how he's feeling that uh, that he finds his friend Euro uh, drained of life. Exactly, um, and what happened? They they fight the assassins off, right? Like so, it turns out his wife is actually a pretty capable warrior, and like he's pretty surprised by this. And so between the two of them, more capable than he is. Yeah, exactly. So like she she ends up kicking butt, and he's like, oh oh wow, like you're beautiful and a butt kicker. <laughs> so I don't have to blame anything. Um, and I oh, mean, how's that happen? So they. I don't does does the one of the assassins tell him, or they find out later that these assassins were actually sent by his aunt. Well, Namariel tells him. Namariel's like, "You still need me. You don't realize how much you need me. This was your aunt, right? And because she was in the bedroom that they were supposed to retire back to, and then comes to help defend." There's nothing like any wedding I've been a part of. Um, yeah, because like uh, Namero had like been whispering to his aunts. Uh, we, you know, had been like revealing um, what had happened and um, specifically claiming that he was responsible for um, her, his cousin, her son's um, death, which although is not completely 100% true, is not also completely 100% false either. Yeah, and the Moragai is given to a fate worse than death, right? So, like, Namariel has betrayed everyone that has put trust in her at this point. Yeah, which was kind of a quick quick heel turn a little bit. Like, she was always, um, you know, you always thought she was kind of on the edge. Like, she was uh, fairly ambitious and was willing to do um, 
willing to do what it took, basically. But mm-hmm. uh, I didn't expect this to happen. Though I guess I don't. I'm not surprised, really. I suppose there was a number of interactions that showed them warming to each other and becoming f- almost familial and leaning on each other and respecting each other. Um, and so, like, they were both kind of like from the beginning. He was. She was plotting to trap him, and he was plotting to escape. And at some point, like in the Sylvaneth forest, um, like they got to the point where it felt like they were like they were going to both agree to this. Um, and there were some things like you know she, later on she blames the spear, um, but that, and I think when he was offered more like the the status of high king by um by this you know these other idaneth um he no she no longer had the leverage to do better than that and so she's out of options her cart like she did so well in helping him get where he got that he, the success was beyond what uh she expected or he expected and she kind of worked herself out of being needed um, and so she is, I think she is definitely, um, she is definitely kind of backed into the corner. Like, am I going to die because of this? Or am I going to get tossed aside because of this, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, uh, part of his power that he's assembled, which is to say the power of his aunt, um, has now been, uh, thrown behind his, his, I don't know, his nemesis, um, the, the felt, uh, is it Felglave? Yeah, Felglave. So he's he's lost that, you know, one one third of his power at this point. So he needs to continue on and uh hit up the next quest giver um to gain another um conclave uh, uh under his sort of you know rule or under his control. And at this point he's under a time crunch because Felglave is like, I know where you are now, right? And so he's sending his army against Gwethen, but uh, their Tidecasters are fighting him. And so it's going to take him weeks to get there, but his Tidecasters are going to be a little bit stronger, so they'll get there. Um, and so they need to go track down this beast that has been destroying everything. And then we have this character, Irame, appear as if out of nowhere. Well, why, why, do, they need the, why do they need the beast? you got to explain that one. The, the queen of Turok, they don't visit. She is there for the wedding and they, and they have her trapped there. Oh, cause they're not going to let her leave. Yeah. They're threatened. They, they want her alliance though. It, she's in with uh Felglaive, Uh, and she says, you like, what are you going to do? Like, they're going to come and destroy you. And then you're not going to kill me. Cause I'm too valuable. Like I'm an Idaneth full, full soul. Um, uh, so they're like, well, but we want your help. Like, what can we do? And she's like, well, there's one thing you can do. Uh, and that's where the quest comes in. Sure. So we, we've done a marriage quest. We've done a retrieve the, the magic weapon quest. We did the leader raid quest. Now we th- need the go retrieve this monster quest. Um, it's apparently this is incredibly powerful beast that no one's ever been able to break. Um, and plenty of Idanath have lost their lives trying to do so. If you can go bring me this impossible beast that no one's ever been able to capture um yeah okay sure i'll I'll give you uh give you my army i suppose um if you can even accomplish that which again is another example of here's this thing that's probably going to kill you um but if you don't sweet i get a a, a, some mythical beast uh under my control so what he's gonna do he's got some time time to kill he's got nothing else going on yeah sure fine i'll go uh i'll go track this beast down um and paul you were going to tell us about irame i want to hear about her 
so Irime is actually a character that we have seen before. Um, surprise, she's from the Learning short story. Uh, so that's kind of a cool little tie-in. Uh, Aaron always likes those little uh, character progressions where we have oh, one story to the next. doesn't do it justice. I <laughs> love it. Um, and so she starts to kind of talk about a different way of understanding the Bond Beasts um, because Lurian, being someone who doesn't really get how it works, he, she's like, not all Bond Beasts respond to pain, right? Which, I'll be honest, when she says that, I feel like she's talking to Lurian, right? Like, you need to understand that you're responding to pain, but not all of these, not all people can respond to this. This is something new and something interesting about you. You need to understand what you're going through to understand how this is all working out. So I feel like even though she's talking about the Bond Beast, she's really talking about Lurian, which I think is a cool aside. From simile. Um, so he agrees, he g- gathers a party together, uh, Irami's going to come along to help break this beast, and the idea is that they need to swim deeper than ever, than they've ever swim before, or than deeper than any most deep can have ever swam, to chase down this um, giant beast and break it. So Irame has a sense of, they have like innate tracking ability, and so she's able to lead the party. And so they head deep, 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 deep into the ocean um, to track this beast down. And so a lot of time is spent. They're going deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, they've brought their Tidecaster, who's again, the old Tidecaster, who's you know fading. Like he's he's um, sort of back on the mend, and so he's trying to do what he can to like uh, progress, but it's becoming harder and harder the deeper and deeper they go. Um, but so let's fast forward a little bit. They do find the um, the lair of this beast. It's in a giant giant like spiral shell, and then she's like, yeah, that beast is in there. Um, and so they um, they head in. Um, Lurian, for whatever reason, takes charge and swims up into the this shell and is able to like shake this beast out, and I've been avoiding calling it what it is at this point because... Uh, surprise reveal um it's a giant alapex which is those those sharks that everyone is familiar with um but it's not just a regular alapex it's massive this ancient prehistoric um alapex and he 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 sort of smokes it out basically and and the party then has to then work together to break it um with irame you know using it her, her embaler i don't know skills or what have you um to uh take it down and they do. I think they blind it. Like they end up like piercing both of its eyes, which makes it easier. Um, and like it's 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 quite the endeavor. But um, they are able to combine their you know their skills to to break it and um, retrieve it and bring it back to um, the, the kingdom um, and to Queen Anir who who wanted it. But um, does she get it, guys? Does she get the giant alapex like she asked? Not. I mean, similar. To him uh, getting the, taking the raid, but keeping the armor, finding the spear for um, uh, the Laughing King, but keeping it for just a little while longer, he convinces her to let him keep it. The 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 big, what does he call it? The Druk, what was the name of it? The Drukale? Oh, yeah, it does have a name. Uh, the Megalofin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, to keep it for the battle. So... He's he's hedging like he's he he has uh he's able to talk him his way into things much more um more than maybe he was earlier like 
it, he has shown his capability to convince others to do things his way. The Daharathai. This was called. And in the Eltharia of the Awakened, it meant black dragon. Um, and I don't know if now is the time to talk about it, but like th- that's a theme that sort of permeates this book a little bit is there's a lot of allusions to like the previous elves of old and like how they used to, you know, live and, and like what, what um, sort of story has been sort of passed down over the millennia about, you know, the high elves, of, uh, high elves of old or the, the dark, um, dark elves of old. Like, so they've got bits and pieces of their culture. And so it's been mentioned that like, they harken back or they, they look back finally to like the high elf relation to like dragons. And so this Darthai is, you know, like his version of a, of a black dragon, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was really cool. Well, and, and the thing that I don't know if we've completely elaborated on here is that all of these things were considered impossible. Right. And Lurian has used his skills uh, and this last one is very specifically used his skills at being able to pull himself out of his body and to drain himself of all emotion to the point where this giant Alapex, this Darathai, cannot even sense him coming, right? And he is proving himself to be this exceptional leader that no one thought he was going to begin with, going to be to begin with, right? He is going on this hero's journey and proving his worth throughout the story. Um, and the Darathai is only the, the latest example in him being able to do something that nobody else has been able to do. And not only has nobody else been able to do it, but like literally the failing to do it has been something that has haunted all of these conclaves for generations. The the caveat to that I'll say is there's, there is a lot of hero's journey here. Um, but I'd also say, and what I think is characteristically Ideneth, is that it's very flawed and it's very like non-heroic at times um, and borderline, you know, lucky, um, like getting lucky that, that, that they were able to do this or do that. Like the book doesn't paint him at, even to the end, even in that uh, getting that, that shark as being like, like his skills, all everything he's learned and his skills have led up to this. I think it leans a little bit more on the idea that the gods have deemed this like that's fair. Totally. Like that, that it does put the, like his ability. Cause they talk about, you know, from that, that initial, like, um, you know, have the gods look at this, uh, this matrimony right between him and his, his Nemerial. Um, like the question here is who is supposed to be on the throne and it sets it up, I think to be, uh, a little more more god touched than him being totally in control of that or if and i don't want to belabor this point but if it's not the gods it's almost like sometimes he's being propped up by other deepkin like i don't know that he's being used per se but almost like it, it's to everyone else's end that he he's getting put in this position of power like no one i mean like they not again i don't know if he's being used but um it's he's being manipulated or he's being guided or directed in the in the the ways that other people want him to so whether it's the gods or the machinations of other mortals um he's still getting positioned and like nudged in the right direction like and from whether it's the kings themselves or snamariel like the lowest of the namarty um some 
he he's always he always fits into somebody else's agenda. Yeah. Um, well, and and uh, in this hunt, you know, because like Namario is still with him, even though he's betrayed her like fully and and wed somebody else. She's like, I'm not really going to accept that. Like, you may have got this nullified by you know a king, but the gods are a little bit higher than that. Like, so she's still invested, um, and I, I would say still cares about him. Uh, and and uh, at this point, and I think we find out later that that's true, um, uh, and vice versa. Say so now we're back at uh, we're back at Guathane, and uh, we are let's say three days after they got back and a day after uh, the Turok forces were able to get there, uh, the battle ensues um, and uh, and uh, the Fellblade and Laramie are attacking. They made it. Um, and so this is the big battle. Like a lot of these books have the big battle and this is it. It's, it's Idaneth versus Idaneth. Um, the, what is it? Like the four conclaves versus the two, no, the three conclaves, I guess. Um, yeah, ma- matching, uh, matching off. And so it's, it's the classic, a lot of these black library books happen this way, right? Like one side gets the upper hand, but then, oh no, the other side's reinforced. And then the other side's reinforced. And no, oh, then this new, this new, uh, unit comes in. So a lot of back and forth, which I, I mean, we love, like we play Warhammer. We're familiar with the concept. Um, who, who got the first turn? I don't know. Um, but, uh, it, it shows off a lot of the different units and maybe some of the unique to this book units um, get their chance to like shine basically. Um, there's the, the Fangmora cavalry and then there's a charge and then a counter charge, which is kind of cool. Um, and I don't mean electricity, but what they've got their volt spears. Um, but my favorite unit that came out of this battle was the, um, the Namardi under the laughing King. And so Eric, you, you were talking earlier about how they were sort of Sylvaneth influenced. Um, I think they're not just Sylvaneth influenced, but I think they're also a little wanderer influenced yeah. as well because their, uh, Namardi had the hallmark motions of war dancers, um, from the old wood elf, um, Man, I'm so sad that they're gone. But they're they're spinning with their like they've got like hooked blades or something like that, and they were whirling and dancing and very much part of this like wild hunt. And they really brought that style um, to the battle and were carving dudes up. And um, being a big Wood Elf fan, um, yeah. I loved every second of it. Sounds like um, you just need to do a Dwyhor themed uh, Sylvaneth or um, Idaneth army. You shut your filthy mouth. I would never do so. Mm. Um, how about I just paint my uh, war dancers that I have in metal, um, <laughs> which I love so very, very much. I, all, like, I got all the special edition ones. Super yeah. pretty. Super pretty models. I love them. So that was my favorite. Did any, any like from the mundane part of the battle, did anything stand out to you guys? Uh, well, Prince Lurian, he takes this, uh, this Derethi and he makes it into a chariot, right? This is a unit that we have not seen. I imagine you could make it if you took the, the chariot from the turtle and hooked it to an Alapex. Uh, but he is fighting with a soul scryer from Dwy Hor, Kim Ladrill, and then also Irame. So the three of them are in this chariot going around trying to uh, direct this battle, which I, I thought was a super cool image, and I would love to see that conversion done. Yeah. Um the another cool um, kind of uh, thing they pick up is the Leviathans um, kind of anchoring, uh, creating a, a, um, force fields that uh, kind of change perspective, make it hard to see uh, what the um, what the enemy's forces are like. It doubles and triples them 
it's a little illusory. Uh, the other thing is uh, they release um, it's it would be pitch black, uh, and it is practically silent. I think they say in some cases, but mm-hmm. they they l- release like waves of bioluminescent fish to light up the battlefield uh, to be able to see what's going on and uh, you know that sort of thing. So just some more things to paint the picture of the battlefield. Uh, I just harking back to the the word answers. They also is like a charge of um, the equivalent of silver helms, but they're like Fangmora knights instead of. But like they're they're hearkening back to like Silverhelm a uh, Silverhelm charge, which I thought was kind of cool. But that's I'm gonna slip that one in there too. Um, cool. So there's this battle. Uh, eventually, the Felglave joins the field and um, he engages uh, Lurian. Um, he like cuts uh, the the shark loose like almost immediately. Like I mean, it maybe does a couple flybys, but eventually, like it's just basically freed and it goes just launching off into the distance. Um, yeah. I think he says something like in a couple months, it's going to, it's going to hit Bryamdar, uh, if it, if it <laughs> continues at that pace or something. Well, and they've, Wait, they've like made it basically brain dead. Um, they've like totally like ruined it as a, as a, like, um, not ruined it, but like that it's not itself. It's not in control of itself. They've like beaten it down. Uh, and so, yeah, it might just be mindlessly going forward and killing things. Yeah. Just, just chomping in a straight line. And, and like everything's going totally fine until all of a sudden Laramie shows up and just like starts destroying entire regiments. Yeah. Just like obliterating them, right? And 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 then after that is when we have Felglaive come up and take take notice. So like the war is going reasonably well and the Deepkin are respecting each other, right? Like it's war, but at least they're fighting with dignity. Until Laramie shows up and just starts obliterating Deepkin. And is it around this time that um, the the magical like face shows up? Is 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 it around here? I think he Lurian goes down into the, yeah. It's I think it's as he's pushing through in the chariot before it gets released. Uh, he sees that what you're talking about. Sure. So there's this giant like face. What is it? Is it made of souls or coral? Or I can't remember exactly. Oh, actually, well, there's there's the coral structure that the Mad King summons, right? Like he he summons like a giant tree out of coral, and that starts smashing people up, which is pretty cool. I don't know where that came from or what that's like think, supposed to be representative of. Do you think he, uh, there's causation or correlation in that? <laughs> oh my gosh! But uh, after that, joke. there's yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Um, there's. Uh, uh, a face is summoned of like mis- you know mystical magical energy, and uh, Lurian recognizes it um, mm-hmm. as his mother's face, as if it was like an, an echo or like uh, a callback to like her her soul or her spirit because of the connection of of Laramie who's who's here and it's so strong. And so while he and uh, Felgaver are like uh, dueling, and Lurian has gotten much better, although maybe he's not up to the task. Plus, he has got like his fancy spear, so he's using that to his, mm-hmm. it, it, the best of his abilities. Um, well, you know, f- the fancy spear contains the souls of those who have helped him along the way. Like it has Uriel, right? It has Eodrain. It has all of these souls with him, and he. It says in the middle of the battle, he feels isolated, then feels those souls imbue him with power. And he starts to grieve and like starts to feel 
what they're feeling. And it gives him this like immense power beyond what normally available to him. But even so, like he's still not able to like flat out defeat Felgrave. But when this face shows up and it starts wrecking, destroying things, Felgrave realizes the importance of maybe stopping that first. Like maybe that's the bigger threat. And so he appeals to maybe Lurian's, um, I don't know, better judgment or like kindness to like the other deep and he says hey look we need to go st- like we got to put aside our differences momentarily to go take that on um and i doesn't even even often offer him a deal he's like look what does he give him like a- he re- he reveals that the reason he didn't kill him and put him in the prison instead he thought that if you put him in there for a couple of months he'd temper his arrogance and that in time he would train him and he would be heir uh, and part of that was that part of uh, when he left or part of the insult to injury is that he told um, uh, Felgrave told Lurian that he was going to marry his dead mother. <laughs> so it'd be, be, uh, but you know, kind of bonded with the soul of his mother. Um, so he, he at least says that he was going to treat him as a son. Like he wasn't there to just like imprison him forever. Um, he had other plans, um, but he ran away before he could tell them. So, um, and that this is a bigger threat because Laramie's what the work she's doing could like just ruin all like again, time and time again, there was a whole thing about, um, how this war itself before it started, there was a whole like posturing of, Hey, we've got this many, you've got this many, we're probably going to win. So you should probably go like they do a lot. There's a lot of layers before they actually get to fighting because they don't want to lose lives. Um, and so like they argue about that a bit. Uh, but even though um, Felglave decided he did want to go to battle when he shouldn't have, he was over, over outmatched um, in numbers, I guess. Um, now he sees yeah, Laramie like just going nuts, going too far, going to kill too many, like it could wipe out all the Idaneth in the Gulch. Um, he says we've got to join and and stop her. And so he, Lurian's like, uh, you know, it's kind of this is something is something better. Like, how does he put it? It's something like it's not what I was going for, but it's something. And then uh, Felglave turns his back, and Lurian kills him in the back. Square in the back. He would rather have nothing than settle for something. Right. He's got it in his head now that he could have the the most. And he so, wanted it all. Don't turn your back on Lurian. He gonna stab it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he kills him and absorbs his soul into the spear. Uh, and then he he goes off to find uh, Laramie. He's fighting against this insane current of magic. Um, and um, the Mariel shows up. Lo and behold. And not only is uh, Laramie um, consuming this power, but she's actually consuming the Coralean, right? She's consuming the souls of all of those Deepkin that have been preserved within this Coralean. Like she's right. literally destroying their entire culture yeah. in her, in her anger at Lurian because she's like, I never loved you. You were, you were a terrible person, right? Like, so she's literally willing to destroy everything that the deep can hold dear in order to just destroy Lurian. Yeah. Right. And the says, 
to kill her, but she is too angry to kill you, right? And and I think this is the moment where Lurian realizes that like he has nothing left to lose, right? This is the moment where he's like, I I don't have to worry about it. And Laramie is coming after him because he she thinks that he killed Nail, right? And the Mariel is like, no, it was me. I killed him. Right? Well, Lurian tries to force her to say it. So she comes to help him get to her uh, or drag him away. She's like, you can't do anything. He's like, I've got to. Like, same old, same old. And he brings her to Nemeriel and asks, or brings Nemeriel to uh, Laramie and asks Laramie, or tells Laramie that it wasn't him, that it was Nemeriel, like throws her under the bus and then asks her to confess. And she's just livid. Um, but in the end she does confess. And then mm-hmm. Laramie just eviscerates her with magic. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> Lorian says, all right, now I'm your nephew. I'm your heir. Let's get, let's get this back. Let's like tone this down. <laughs> Like let's should we should we go back to our own kingdoms? And she's like, yes, let's. Like that's all it takes. Yep. Yeah, it's an interesting, re- you know, like again, she's spurned, but like, and she goes like full, uh, like emotion. But yeah, somehow like that connection, and there's still something there that that you know, I guess. And this was like the first thing where it's like, wow, he, not the first, but like he again, he dives into it. Um, with good intention, and it works out for him. Yeah, I mean, not for, for most, not for anyone else, really, but for him, yes, it does. It does uh, work out for him. So um, he and the ant uh, just go swimming off, basically, and and end this this battle. Um, the the damage that she was doing sort of ends, and she I don't know if she comes to her senses or she's she's calmed down or abated uh, in some way. Um, and they, uh, they they call truce, and that. Uh, Unless you have anything else to add, guys, is the end of the story proper uh, mm-hmm. before we get to the, the the epilogue? Yeah, yeah. I was not expecting that as an ending, um, but it also it also there was a strange sense about it again about how they operate. Like they when you when you cut people with each other with words, it doesn't go that deep, right? Um, but you know, the Laramie had such incredible power um, that it kind of went nuts, like susceptible to going crazy with emotion. But they also, I don't know, get over it quick. Like they doesn't seem like they have time to, to hold grudges the same way that, uh, or can afford to like kill each other. So like, what's the point of the grudge, you know, like a Dwarden might have. Yeah. It's like she, once she knew the truth, she knew that Nemerio killed her son. She eliminates Nemerio. Problem solved. Like, that's the end of it. Like, there's nothing else to, like, you, like, a lot of people need to come down from that. Like, there's, there's, like, a long tail of emotion. But now she can just, like, switch it off. Um, mm. All right, cool. Uh, we're, we're done here. Well, Moving on. I think what, what the end of the story really says is the revenge, the, the war, everything was about the fact that Laramie thought that Lurian killed Nail, that a deepkin killed another deepkin, right? Like, I think that's what this whole war was about. 
And in the end, when Laramie realized that it wasn't Lurian, that it was the Namardi, right? That, that she was dead, right? Like she had been killed. Justice had been served and she could stop sacrificing Deepkin lives to make revenge on the one life that had been lost, right? That to me is what the whole point is because it had been stated throughout the story over and over again, Deepkin, Deepkin fighting Deepkin was the worst possible outcome that anybody could have. Nobody wanted that because it just would lead to the destruction of their race. And once it was established that Lurian wasn't responsible, then there was no need to fight with Deepkin versus Deepkin. They could continue on with the escapades of the court and the spies and everything else. But it was just the murder of a Deepkin by a Deepkin that was intended to be the terrible trigger that caused this terribleness. Hmm, cool. Interesting. Uh, any other pre-epilogue thoughts? Pro-epilogue? Um, no. Cool, because then we'll hop right into it. Um, what are some what are some takeaways from this uh, this this epilogue? Uh, Lurian survives. Uh, his queen uh, survives as well. So he and she um, are ruling uh, t- together. Um, what, what what are some things that stood out to you guys in these like two three pages that we had left left over? I was gonna say so uh, there. He's back on his throne. Um, it comes full circles, but it's, this is the. Uh, one of the thrones that, and this one's in his kind of uh, bed chambers. He's waiting for his wife. We find that Morgai is alive and he's chosen her, like employed her, staved her execution and uh, put her in. He now, she now works for him and is going to take on that role that Eodrain had when he died of standing out to the door uh, when he and his wife um, consummate the marriage. Um, his wife comes in, uh, says she's going to go back to uh, Gwethane. And he's like, nah, I don't want you to go. And he's he's being very explicit with his affection, which is weird. Like, I, I don't think it's just because, you know, like, obviously she's beautiful, uh, as, as he said. But, like, he sees her as capable. He sees her as he's learned to treat Namardi for what they're capable of. And so I think he respects her. Um but he also reveals that he's not like, she's talking about needing to stamp down, you know, um, you know, Dwyhor, the man, the laughing King's going to want, you know, his, uh, spear back. Um, the, the, the queen of Turok wants her, um, giant beast that she was promised, um, this, that, and the other. Um, and so she wants to stamp down these, these promises. And he's like, what do you think about the name high queen? And so now he's, I think he's moved from what other people want him to do to what does he want to do now? Ambition. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Like that's the, that's the, um, that's the, the sneak peek into the sequel of the court of the blind King court of the blind King Two: electric boogaloo, <laughs> um, electric eel boogaloo. <laughs> Canadian boogaloo. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's, he's not quite satisfied. I mean, he, he got through it by the skin of his teeth, but he has, <laughs> He still wants more. Not, not satisfied. Uh, cool. Any other story thoughts before we jump into a whole bunch of other stuff? No, I mean, I, I really en- I enjoyed the twists and turns. I don't know that there's a moral of the story. <laughs> uh, make promises and don't keep them, basically. 
because uh, he like, and this is what makes me feel like it's it's back to like he's been put in this position for a reason. Like everything has conspired to get him here. It's not through his own power. Uh, it's you know it, it seemed like everybody else was trying to control it, but it kept backfiring on them and working for him. And and that's gotta feels like it has to have a higher power involved. Divine intervention. All right, let's. I want to ask you guys some questions. All right. First, who is your dude or dudette? Uh, Paul, hit me with one. Mara guy. Ooh, she's, just she's such scary. A cool character, like yeah, like little girl who just goes through and just can devastate anyone. Plus, she survived. And also, so you a doily. Yeah, exactly. Totally, and it'd be absolutely beautiful and absolutely wonderful. I like the idea of a Namardi that is truly threatening, right? And in ways that you could not even imagine. Um, this unassuming little girl type figure, right? Like I, I thought she was super cool. I liked her a lot. Right on. Eric, who was your, uh, who was your person? My person was uh Nemerial. I, I enjoyed being inside of uh, Lurian's head. Like he was a great main character. I really enjoyed him, but from I think from the get-go, um, Nemeriel just had an ambition. She had a clear vision. Uh, she got things done. And, you know, his success for the first half of the book, at least, was on her shoulders. Um, and, and like, even though her reasons were like, I want to be queen, like, I feel like she treated him fair. You know, I liked that she ribbed him. I liked that she challenged him. I liked, like, I've at the point where the two of them were like seeming like they were going to both be in this for better reasons than just uh, using each other. Like I was sold. Like I was like, if this ends with them, like if that were the, an alternate universe where the two of them like finish this and become, you know, King and queen, like that is a, I buy it at this point. Right. So yeah, I think the Mariel's my, was my dude at cool. Um, my, I mean, I liked a lot of the main characters that actually had real personalities, but I feel like I was hurt or like hit the most when Uriel died. And so I'll say Uriel was my dude. Um, he was the big Namardi who he, uh, Lurian initially thought was like the muscle of the group. And he, and he, and he could be for sure, but he actually was a little bit more of a sort of a gentle soul, a gentler soul and was much more of a cook or like, yeah, craft person. Yeah, exactly. So, like, he, 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 like, throughout the story, he was, like, feeding everybody, um, which I thought, uh, was, you know, just a, a fun, not change of pace, but, like, it subverted Lurian's expectations and thus subverted my expectations as well. And he, he seemed fairly loyal and, like, um, he didn't seem to have a nefarious or, like, underhanded bone in his body. And so, like, because of that, he was sort of in stark contrast to a lot of the characters that we did see. Like mm-hmm. there were very few, I guess nail would be another example of, of um, non like sneaky uh, manipulative like characters. And because of that, he really stood out um, for me. So I, I did like him. Plus he had a cool like ax. Like I can't even remember what the word for what his weapon was, but I had to look it up and it was, it's like a funky wood ax thing that I thought was uh, neat. Just goes to show that like he wasn't necessarily a warrior per se, but he was much more of a, like a worker or like a laborer. Um, so yeah. because of that, I liked him. Nice. Um, did you guys learn anything about the mortal realms that you didn't know before? The whole book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess from a deep Kim perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the Zinch demons that were in the deep water before they got to the Alapex were super cool. Um, the, uh, the little snails 
they would take with them to travel when they went over the the ground instead of through the whirlways were were kind of a cool little thing. I really appreciated them. Like just little touches of lore that didn't need to be there, but were there because why not? They're super cool. Yeah, right on. Eric, did you learn anything about the realms? Um, not the realms as a whole. There was one, and and I don't know if uh, this was in the this was chapter eighteen, uh, the beginning of the chapter, and this was a thing that I had kind of an issue with. Although, if we take it as canon, um, and it starts off, the ocean was the last great unconquered space in the mortal realms outside of the mighty Azir. Um, so, like in our reality. Like they, they, he goes through this this part talking about the ocean and what it is and all this kind of stuff, and it sets it on like almost the level of a realm, which doesn't feel appropriate to me because there's in my head there's probably multiple oceans and there's multiple you know places in multiple realms where there would be oceans, um, and so it kind of that one that kind of took me out of it in trying to, I guess, set the ocean up as something more mortal realmsy than what we experience like they do a good job in the moment and throughout the book telling it but there's a couple of times where it feels like it flattens it back down to it's just this very vast space um, which is i don't think is good enough for the way you know we've we've come to like get the mortal realms described to us um so there's some aspects of that that um uh that i wasn't as as fond of but um i think I think it's just that the as the in this one book we see so many different aspects of Idaneth in their different cultures. We see so many different aspects of uh, a new aspect of Nurgle. Um, we see a new aspect of Sylvaneth, and I think to me that broadens my ability to think about how vast and different the rest of the mortal realms could be. How about you, Aaron? Right on. Um, actually, I'll, I'll build off uh, that a little bit. Um, I, I'm starting to appreciate sort of in juxtaposition of how I feel about models, um, appreciate what I'm going to, st- I think I'm going to start calling like narrative conversions or lore conversions that we see in these stories. And that like you take a thing that you know, and in the same way that you guys would convert your models into something like in your imagination to like, oh, this is this creative thing that could exist in the moral realms. It's, it's based in something that exists in a model form, but I, I modified it a little bit to be this a little bit, you know, a little different. Um, and we get more and more of that in these stories and I'm starting to notice them and appreciate them and, you know, I, I give more attention to them. And so there was a handful of those in, in this book, like the, the Nurgle giant, like, yeah, obviously you could have conceived that a Nurgle giant existed, but now I've sort of seen one in play now um, for the, what is it? The Gulch Empress or like an underwater forest. If you would have told me, Hey, Aaron, there's an underwater forest in the world realms. I'd have been like, yeah, absolutely. Of course there is but now i've seen it in a story and like i've lived there for a little bit um or for just i'm gonna write all our stuff off like the deep sprites it's not just sprites in the woods but it's sprites underwater or like those namardi war dancers it's it's something that i know and it's as if you were to convert the model but rather you just converted it in the story and so now those are sort of cemented in the world like it's not just a what if but rather it in a way they're canon right like now they exist uh written down in an official capacity um in in the story and so i it man i love mentally collecting those things as as time goes on um and here's just another assortment of fun things that you know we'll never get models per se but are still 
you know, residents or denizens of, of uh, the moral realms now. So like you said, they're not realms wide, but rather it's, it's the, the, the peppering of uh, creativity um, yeah. in, in this space. And you don't even have to clean mold lines. No, God, no. Oh, it's <laughs> this terrain with the, the graded doors. It's, that's what's going to kill me. That's the problem. Um <laughs> And I think this sort of leads into, maybe we'll start jumping into our, our listener questions. And I, I sorted some of them out into different categories. And so there's a lot of, a handful of questions about Deepkin society as, as a whole. Um, listener questions. Guys, if you want to ask questions of us that we talk about on our show, um, the trick to this, and there's a trick, is that you have to be in our Discord, which is www.themortalrealms.com slash Discord. And you just have to hang out there all the time, constantly, because who knows when I'm going to randomly ask the group, hey, we're going to be recording today. Does anybody have any questions about this thing? Because if you're there and you're listening, you too can ask questions of the Moral Realms. So let's talk about some Deepkin Society questions. Uh, Darth Alec asks, uh, do we, the reader, after having read a full book about Ideneth intrigue, feel like we have a good grasp on how the Ideneth work politically. Eric, do you think we have a good grasp of, on how they work politically? I think um, we have a, a ton of examples from here of political actions. Um, so I think so. I think, um, I think we do. Right on. Cool. Um, Franz Van Huge, uh, a patron of the show, thank you very much, um, asked why all the jazz about food tasting good when they're all about drugs to stop you feeling anything, meditating your senses away, and not touching each other. Um, why do you think that was uh, included, Paul? What do, you, what do you think that has to do with our, our deep kin friends? So I think what, the, what it's trying to portray is it's trying to portray this level of quartz that they have, right? Like, even though they can't taste it, they still deserve to have the best food, right? Even though they can't touch anyone else, they still deserve to have the most beautiful exploration it is this exploration of court and court in and of itself almost implies that you are supposed to be luxurious even if you can't touch that touch that luxury right so i think it is it is meant to make us feel how wasteful how overcomplicated and as if it were a play i think it really nails that home really well Okay, right on. Um, he also asked, uh, did um, the quote-unquote marry my Namardi daughter thing overcomplicate the intention to establish Ideneth as an afamilial race, which I think the point he's making is that it, they don't, we wouldn't expect them to have such strong ties to their family when who knows whether or not their offspring are going to be Namardi or full-blooded uh, um, deep kin. Um, did we feel... It overcomplicated the intention. I don't know. Maybe to the degree it almost simplified it, I think, in that um, we as people are, are, you know, in the real world are familiar with the idea of passing down sort of um, rule or like regency. So if nothing else, it, it, it sometimes felt like shorthand to like connect us to it. However, it does sort of stand as a, a juxtaposition to what we thought we knew about the Deepkin, where maybe ruling would be a little bit more um, deserved or like you, you'd have to earn it. Um, and as opposed to, you know, actually being, um, passed down through, through, you know, not even bloodlines cause it's not, not bloodlines. Um, so I think that maybe had something to do with maybe the adoption, like the idea being that like the, the pure blooded, uh, elves are so rare that like your choices are, are relatively slim and you uh, have to pick and choose from the relatively slim. No, I don't get it. What'd we laugh relatively. at? Relatively. Oh, okay. There you go. Um, and that like you had to be judicious and who you adopted in the first place. And, um, it's, although not necessarily democratic in a way, it still is, um, 
sort of identifying those who, who might possibly deserve it. And I don't know if, if you can identify that at, at children or at the, at the, you know, the age that they're doing it, but that might be one way that it's um, a meritocracy perhaps. Um, but again, I, I understand why you asked the question. It, it did seem a little different than what we thought we knew, but who knows? I mean, there's a wide range of different um, deep king con- conclaves out there. They may live different ways. They may rule in different ways. There's I'm sure not one uh, set in stone uh, process for that. Um, Klaus asked, uh, also a patron, thank you very much, Klaus. Uh, what did you make of their relationship to their god slash gods? Did it work? And are they the only faction with an antagonistic relationship with their god? I'm going to ask Paul that question. What do you think about uh, their relationship to the gods? Um, I think it did work well because they're hiding from Teclas and they're praying to other gods. And I like that they kind of reached back into the lore to really pull all those gods together. And the interesting thing is that um, I believe one of the names that they referred to as a god is going to pull into the Lumineth Realm Lords because I think that that caster who has the sheet across her face has the name of the god that we have referred to here in uh, Throne of the Blind King. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it works pretty well as this balance between when they get married they go to the shrine of Mathlan, right? But when Namariel tries to have him marry her, she makes him swear on all the gods. I, I think it works pretty well. Okay, cool. Uh so we got a couple questions about Lurian specifically. Uh Darth Alec again asked, uh why do people keep trusting Lurian? Hey, uh Eric, do you have any thoughts on why people would why in their right minds would they be trusting Lurian at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think at first uh, there is a like uh, Namariel trusts him because she thinks he has. She underestimates kind of his character. I think. Um, I think I think everybody underestimates him, and and I think you said it, Aaron tries to use him, um, and he has the right, you know, lineage and this, that, and the other to make it work for them. Um, but I th- I do think that he. Um, he becomes better than what everyone expected him to be. Cause I mean, even when like, you know, like it's like the, of course he's going to accept this marriage proposal. Like they're like, think that he's predictable. Um, when I think all along, he's kind of, he's rising above some of that a little bit. I, you know, that's, that's a little bit back to, to Paul's sense of him as a heroic journey. I do think he's gaining capability and character along the way for sure. Okay. Uh, Klaus, again, wanted to ask, uh, did the unsympathetic protagonist and his development match up with what you expected from the Ideneth as elves? Um, I think the trap I was falling into a lot of times is when, when you talk about elves, um, you start to think that you, you default to them as being sort of like noble, not necessarily always good, but like noble with like higher art ideals and um, they, they're a proud race and they aren't necessarily inherently like underhanded or sneaky, but like what you got to remember about the Deepkin is they are they are flawed, they are broken, and like they were cast aside, and they wouldn't be living at the bottom of the ocean if there wasn't something maybe inherently wrong with them. Now, obviously, we know the soul component to it, but like I think there's m- more to it than that. It's not just the fact that their soul is fractured and they have that sort of I don't know if it's the Namardi curse or whatever you want to call what's happening to them, but uh, something to their character I think is is flawed and i always thought that was the case and reading this story i think sort of proved it in that there were so very few good characters which is kind of what i was talking about with 
uh, Uriel before is that um, that because there's so few good characters, like this, this is almost exactly what you would expect to happen. And in a way, like Lurian is maybe the good guy out of out of the Deepkin because, like, that's what a good guy Deepkin looks like. Like, you can't maybe necessarily hold them to the same moral standards as you do everybody else because, like, you're never going to get that. And maybe that's the best you could ever really hope for. Um, and so that's kind of how I look at it at this at this point. Like, I don't like him, but like I understand why he is the way he is. Um, uh, a couple questions or a couple questions about Numeriel. I'll ask maybe one. Um, Francis wanted to know, and I'm asking this because I want to know um, what prevented Lurian from killing Numeriel at all the times when he ought to have done. Did she have any redeeming uh, features? This question, I guess maybe is for everyone. Um, wh- why did he just kill her? What, what is going on? Um, and what came of the, the, the promise, like the stabbing the knife through the hands? Like what, what, that didn't seem to really have any ramifications in the long run, did it? Um, Eric, start me off. So one, I think she kept doing things for him that he needed. And I think he appreciated it. I don't think that she was ever at odds with him. And the threat of marriage was so far off that he was always thinking there might, was, there's going to be a way out. Um, so I don't, I don't think, I don't think she was ever his adversary. Um, even after cast away, she was an adversary. So I don't, to me, it doesn't killing her. Never made, it would never have made sense to me. Even after she betrayed him, like what, what you still think that she was serving a purpose. I guess I'll say what, how did she betray him? By, she went out of her way. I think to tell the aunt that Lurian had ordered the hit on her son. Okay. Maybe I didn't get that part. Um, oh, and maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. I guess I thought that was what she was saying. So, and even if he had, like, I think that she probably didn't expect it to go that far, hmm. right? Like, and and in the end, he—that's the reason she ended up dying—is because he made her um, confess, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think she got she got what she needed when she needed it. I guess. Although I don't think I don't think she deserved to die. I was gonna say she got what she deserved. I don't think she deserved it. I. Uh, Paul, do you have anything to add? I think that Nemeriel survived because I think at first Lurian was afraid of the retribution of the gods, right? I, I think when he made that oath, he wasn't afraid of Nemeriel. He was afraid of the retribution of the gods because he swore to marry her. And then I think coupled with that was he was afraid of Laramie. And he was afraid that Namariel knew something about Laramie that uh, Lurian did not know. And I think when we get to the apex of the story, when Laramie is literally talking to Lurian, and he realizes that all Laramie wants is revenge for Nail, because Laramie and Lagathe were so close, to kill Lagathe's heir was such a terrible thing. That when he realized that all it came down to was Laramie only wanted to know who killed him, that Lurian realized that Nemeriel no longer had any value. There was nothing that she could hold over him anymore. And that's the point at which he shoved her forward and allowed her to be killed, right? Because at that point, she had nothing to hold over his head anymore. She might have said that she was going to marry him. But she did that under pressure. And I think that Lurian was far more scared of Laramie than anything that Namariel could do. 
And once he realized that he could satisfy Laramie, then who cares about Namario? Yeah, so I just want to say too, like I don't think like Namario never threatened him. She always, it was always like, if you don't, if we don't do this, we're both dead. Like she threw in her lot with him and committed. Um, The other thing I'll say is like he couldn't. He was a pansy that had no capabilities (laughs) compared to hers. Like the only reason he defeated Felblave at the end was because he stabbed him in the back. Like even then he didn't have the same skill that she did. Like she was a superior being. (laughs) So like, again, I'd I'd say they're just, I don't think there was a motivation to, and I don't think he could have. Okay. Sure. Um, I wasn't going to ask, but Darth Hall, I guess, when did you personally predict that Nemerial was going to bite it? Uh, I'll answer that with a, way before she actually was. A long, long time ago, I thought she was going to bite it. Um, but uh, Klaus asked another question. Um, I like this one. He, he said, uh, do you see the Adneth as having the gravitas to move the or- overall story forward? Um, we did the battle tome before I started asking this. Or we did the, the uh, Deepkin battle tome review before I started asking this question pretty regularly. So I'm curious. Maybe I'll ask it now. Do we think that the having read the story, the Deepkin, um, do have the the weight to move the big picture story um, forward? Do you think this changes your opinion, or this this lends credibility to one way or the other? Um, I'll ask Paul. Um, it's hard to say uh, because I admit they're so tied to the oceans, right? Um, I could see them having the ability to influence the story as far as driving the main story forward. I have a hard time with that. Contrarily, they have so many unprotected whirlways that they are probably the faction that has the most capability of being anywhere at any time. So perhaps that in and of itself is enough of a power that they would be able to move the story forward just because they have so much agency because they don't have to fight through all these different realm gates and all these different places and they don't have this populated um, world that they live in because almost everything is the Eidness. So I guess I could see them having enough agency and gravitas just because they control so much of where they are. Now, if we're going to be able to see another underwater race, that would definitely bring that to a cracking halt. But at the moment, we don't have anything that really provides a, a really good set. Okay. Um, all right. So I think that'll do. There are a handful of other questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them. Um, but I think we'll, 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 that brings us to maybe our review uh, part of things. Um, I'll ask what you guys thought of the book as a whole. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll couch it in Klaus's last question, which is to say, did the Court of the Blind King give flavor life? depth to the lore of the Idaneth. So phrase your uh, review is sort of with that with that in mind, um, what what you thought of this book here. Uh, we'll do Eric first. So I'm, I'm going to go back to my rating. I have a rating. I'm, I'm going to give this 10,000 leagues out of 10,000 leagues. Uh-huh. Mm. Um, under or above the sea? Under, under, in fact. Um, and, and for me, yeah, I mean, I don't think it, from the start to the finish, I got flavor. I got um, uh, world building, but more importantly, I think character building. Like I got to see a dozen different takes on, um, you know, uh, a Namardi. I got, you know, a handful of royalty and every, you know, all of them responding to this um, power void differently. Um, And 
you know, and, and I think there's, there's probably more to unpack in terms of like, why did, why did the, um, Gethwain not just try and take the throne for themselves? Like he was a pretty powerful warrior. Like why didn't he want to be high King? Um, so things like that, like, um, so I think there's, there's plenty in here and I think there's plenty to, to springboard off of for future material. Right on. Paul, hit me up. Uh, I really enjoyed the book as well. I thought it was really good uh, as an introductory novel um, for the Eidoneth. So I would give it eight out of eight spider legs. Um, and one of the main criticisms that I heard levied against the book was that it did not live up to the lore of the battle tome because it described them as being very sensory deprivation and we have a really passionate character, right? Um, so I'd have two responses to that criticism. Number one is that you would never write a book about somebody who's not exceptional in a race of people who live with no emotion. So I think you have to make an exceptional character in order to make an interesting story. Um, but number two, I think it is because the character is exceptional that really illustrates the definition of the court of the Eidoneth that I think we see here, where everyone else is willing to risk his life in order to achieve their goals. And I think that makes them very dispassionate where they're like, eh, I know that you're a full bodied Eidoneth and like you want to go do this thing, but like go do something impossible and then maybe I'll back you. And I think it is literally the background of the the court that he plays off against that really helps to define the Eidoneth as who they are as a very dispassionate, unemotional race. And when we do have these moments of emotion in in Lorian's character, it's about him experiencing things that he's never experienced before um, through pain, through loss, and it's always taking him out of his element in order to experience it when we're in the Sylvaneth woods or, you know, where he's seeing his his cousin die. And I think it was illustrated really well, and I think it was very relational, and I believe it was very believable for me for his character to go through these different emotions in order to live out this story. Cool. I think, yeah, I, the way you, you phrased it, he is kind of the exception that proves the rule a little bit. Um, and I honestly just said that because I love any excuse there is to <laughs> use the phrase to use the, uh, he's the exception that proves the rule. Um, in the, in the context of Klaus's question, uh, does it give flavor, life, and depth to the lore of the Eidneth? I think it definitely does. Um, there was a time in Age of Sigmar's history or Black Library's history where they were trying to make it a point, I think, to, um, release um, a, a, a story or stories um, around whenever like an army got released. So like when the Sylvaneth got released, there was the Legends of Sigmar Sylvaneth or Fire Slayers or et cetera, et cetera. They kind of got away from it for whatever reason. I think maybe it was hard to schedule or, or hard to do, but you, especially with these newer armies, um, Deepkin, KO, et cetera, et cetera. I think stories like this are almost necessary. Like it, it, it's, you need to have something like this released around the same time as when the army released. Now, despite the fact that Deepkin was released a fair bit in advance of this, this book, because you've got your, your battle tome and it can very, you can describe the army, you know, very uh, clinically um, or, you know, like an encyclopedia and the little bits of flavor here and there, but you're never going to get the, the ins and outs, the depths, the flavor, the life, et cetera, et cetera, um, as what a novel can reveal. So I feel like I learned as much in this book as I learned in the battle tome, and this is, you know, obviously a, a story, like, but it was still just as educational in sort of the context of the the plot that it was it was telling me. And I think because of that, it it, it definitely serves a great purpose. Um, and heck, it's probably even necessary for an army to be, 
you know, fully introduced uh, into the moral realms. And so um, I'm glad it exists. I'm glad I, <laughs> I'm glad I got to read it. Um, I'm glad I got to uh, learn a fair bit about the Deepkin. And because of that, it, it leaves you wanting more. Like it was very foundational. Um, and, and furthermore, it, it was great because it, it touched on so many different aspects of the faction. I think you guys were sort of alluding to a lot of this before, but like every little component of what makes a deepkin a deepkin, whether it's the fact that they live in the ocean or that they have all these uh, aquatic creatures that they have to control or the fact that they're stealing souls. Like every, on the on the graph or the grid of what makes up the deepkin army, it touched on every little thing. Like obviously, I think that's probably had to have done on, been done on purpose, right? Like mm-hmm. that has to be part of the, the prescription of having this book written is you need to touch on all these things. But it does and it fleshed all of that stuff out um and or or dove deeper into each of those things <laughs> such that it wasn't just um you didn't it wasn't just described to me but rather i got to live all these different components i got to see what it was like to break to, uh, a, a beast i got to see what it was like to look down I, I i know what it's like now to look down on a bunch of um namardi and you better believe i'm gonna i'm gonna hold on to that um forever yeah. um so because of that i think it, it served a great great purpose and i'm Again, I'm happy to have read it. Uh, if I have to give it a rating, uh, I'll probably just give it the four out of five of the of the conclaves that we talked about in this story. There's five, right? That mm-hmm. sounds right. Um, in that, um, the the plot was good, and like structurally, I think it w- it was great. It just it left me wandering yeah, here and there. I, th- I feel like maybe I ha- would have had to have fill in, filled in some of the blanks myself in terms of people's motivation as opposed to what I saw there. Um, but I mean, that's it's overshadowed by how interesting the book ended up being. Um, so that's my take. Uh, any other thoughts before we get to our closing? It really makes me want to read a KO book where they go to five or six or seven different skyports throughout the story and really give it this flavor and texture to the skyports. I would love to see something like that. Should we coin this as a pub crawl style uh, story? That's fair. Yeah, I can see that. Some more more pub crawl stories. More pub crawl stories. I mean, even it's even if like the structure ends up being like artificial, like it's it still it still did its job. Like it still did a great job at delivering the info. Pub crawl it is. Hey Eric, how about you uh pub crawl me out of here? (laughs) Pub crawling me crazy. (laughs) It's time for our reforging, but Sigmar willing, we'll be back soon. Like, subscribe, share, or leave a review. Join us on Discord, drop a tip in our Patreon. Anything you can do will spread the word of Sigmar further than we can do it on our own. Chat with us anytime about your thoughts on Twitter at The Mortal Realms. And where can they find you, gentlemen? I am Paul, and I am at PJ Shard. I'm Aaron, and you can find me on Twitter at DosAsos. And I am Eric on Twitter at StoneMonkGamer. You can find all of our Mortal Realms shows and content at themortalrealms.com. Right here on the ocean floor, such That's wonderful things surround you. What Paul, don't join in. Paul, <laughs> Paul, don't join in. I got to get through this. He's got to edit this. Making Why it would my job so much harder? Okay, so that I think wraps up maybe the who, unless you have any other who thoughts. Maybe about the who. Now's the time to do it. A pinball a wizard. <laughs> yeah, there you guys go. Um, and uh, final question from Thundercake. He's a king. Why doesn't he get LASIK? 
And I think I'm going to splice that in at the end. <laughs>